I'm not trying to single out you. There are many, many content creators in the space, event planners in the space that give rosier coverage to sponsors. And then when the sponsor rugs all of their audience, they say, no one could have seen it coming. It wasn't my responsibility. But meanwhile, there's plenty of us that didn't do that. Hello there from Austin, Texas. How are you all? Gotta sound absolutely buzzing. We had our biggest game of the season last night. I wanted to be there, but I'm out here working. But we played Northampton Chennai, one of our big title rivals, and we won 3-1. An amazing performance. So a big shout-out to my team. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today on the show, I've got my annual wrap-up with Matt O'Dell. Now, if you of you were asking, like, where's the Matt O'Dell wrap-up? Are you not going to do it? Why aren't you doing it? Now, listen, we knew we were going to be coming out to Nashville, and it was a chance to do it in person. So I hit up Matt and said, listen, let's just do it in the first week of January, and we'll get out a few days late. And he agreed. All right. Now, this is a really interesting show, and it was like a no-holes bars. I said to Matt, we can talk about anything, and I knew there were certain things he wanted to challenge me on, specifically with regards to sponsors. So, yeah, I let it I let it happen. I said to Matt, let's talk about everything. And it's tough because there was a certain requirement to do a little bit of introspection in the show and reflect on maybe some of uh, the decisions I've made with some of the sponsors. So, yeah, here it is. It's all out there. I hope you enjoy it. If you've got any questions about this, you're going to... Anything you want to ask me about this, please reach out. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I just heard some wheels spin out the back. Do you want to go open the garage for him, Jazz? If Odell? Uh, I'm waiting outside the garage. Okay. All right. See you in a sec. Dad, Jazz is going to come down and get you. Uh, okay. Yeah. No Dell. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking finally here. Is this the latest anyone's ever been? I mean, I don't think anyone's even been late before. <laughs> Everyone's always on time. <laughs> <laughs> People are chronically early. This is like right next to the fucking park. Oh. Seven minutes. You're finally, finally here. I drove 20 minutes away from the park and then 20 minutes right back. We're right next to the park. <laughs> All right, I'm going to confess. We're recording. We just set the recording waiting for you. you. Am I just entering? Yeah, everyone's going to know you're late. Do you want, do you want an apple? Uh, I don't want to eat on here. Well, we, no, can, we can slice you an apple. Oh, you want to slice me do you want a sliced apple and a little bit of peanut butter to dip it in? <laughs> I don't do peanut butter. This is all part of the show. That's awesome. I'll be there in a second. All right. Have you, have you changed hats? Oh, no, you haven't. Late Dell or no Dell? No, no Dell, no. Odell. Did you tell them why I'm late? Yeah, it's your mistake. It's your fault. You didn't, you didn't say, Pete, what's the address so I can come to the interview? Hi, Matthew. I asked, I asked Peter his address. That was the mistake. And he said, Westfield Drive. It's an accurate address. It was like 25 minutes away outside of Nashville. And right when he had told me the address, I said, damn, 
why'd you decide to stay at a place so far away? And you said it was bigger and better for shooting. Okay. And then I said, yeah, the other place is a way better location. Okay. So then I proceeded to drive 20 minutes out there only to drive 20 minutes back to here because this is like a couple blocks away from Bitcoin Park where I had just recorded Citadel Dispatch and then was driving to you. I'm going to put this out as a poll and check. It's Saturday today. We get here on Wednesday and I get a, I get a text from you saying, looking forward to kick it, brother. Where's your house at? I'm like, oh, I mean, I just got here. I'm like, oh, I'm on Westfield Drive. Didn't realize it's Westwood Drive, like just made a simple mistake. Personal responsibility, Peter. Well, you should have... Danny sent you an invite. That is true. That is true. That is true. Uh, I wouldn't have been so casual if, you, if I'd have known you were using this as your direction. <laughs> I literally asked you what your address was. Yeah, I just thought, like, where are you in the city? Okay, well, it's fine. I'm glad I made it. Thank you again for having me. You're 41 minutes late. Our yearly... <laughs> it was literally the drive both ways. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel bad now. Uh, you should feel a little bit bad. So, and you'll show that people think we weren't going to make. Uh, you're not allowed to fuck around with the microphone all interview. Everyone said I do it too much. I don't have yeah. any uh, formal podcast training. Uh, so don't fuck around with the microphone. Anything else? All interview, you're like this. What? Yeah, but you couldn't hear it on the... It was just pissing people off on the video feed. Yeah, it's the video people. Fuck the video people anyway. We don't make money off them. Uh, Danny, tell, tell Matthew about Derek. Have you heard about my fan? Yeah, Danny's no, got a camera. Now. You have a camera now? That yeah. cut out when I was telling you about Derek S as well. The recording, the audio. I did it? So Derek S will never know what we said about him. Poor Derek. Oh, wow. I think, De- I think we know Derek, and I just want to know who it is. I don't know. Yeah. He must love the fact that he's getting like his moment in the, in the show. Shout out to Derek. What's up, Derek? Uh, yeah, so people who don't know, me and Matt here normally make a... Look, I'm fucking playing with it Don't now. play with it, bro. Uh, we normally make a show every Christmas. Uh, a I year, like playing with it. Continue. <laughs> a, year, a year of review and talk about next year and get drunk normally. We normally get wasted. Yeah, we've gotten pretty drunk pretty much every one, right? One, we got so drunk that we just yelled at each other. That I'd, was the best... Oh no, that one was the one. The year before that was the my favorite. I think that, I, I had the one to edit we did at my apartment. The one we did at my apartment was the best one. Yeah, that was. Good. I had to edit the one where you both got really drunk on Zoom, and that was not the best. That one, one was so bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember finishing that. Show. That was like a, I don't know. It was a bit of a Thanksgiving Day table argument. Oh, you don't have Thanksgiving. Bring, bring like it out. Christmas of dinner. Yeah, it's, it's Christmas without presents. Yeah. That's what that one was, though. Yeah. It was like two, you know, like me, me and my uncle getting into a drunken argument. Because we weren't together. The, the remote ones don't work. Yeah. These work. You, uh, your, your Citadel Dispatch ones, you do in person, right? If you Citadel can. Dispatch. Yeah, you do those in person, don't you? I, I try my best. Like, but, I, we just recorded one in person at Bitcoin Park. But they're better, right? You get it. They're better in person. It's always better. I mean, it's a little bit... Di- These lights are really bright. Yeah. We have a more laid-back approach at Civil Dispatch. There's no video, no lights. Yeah. You know, I, I can relax with the people. Do you want the light off? Thank you. No, I mean, you can leave it on. if you, I know it's best for your, your video, but it, it's very, it's, it takes you out of it a little bit, you know? People get a bit nervous in the environment. I mean, this is a very, this, I've never, well, until last year, I never had this many cameras just pointed at me. Yeah, well, you have now. Uh, we're doing this without drink for the first time ever. Oh, yeah, so you're sober now. 
Is that just a January thing or is that a... Uh, I'm not sure. Um, uh, definitely January. Like, and then just see what happens. Uh, I'm not like... A, it's not that... Um, I'm like feeling like I'm I'm not like an alcoholic, but when we do these journeys, I drink on the plane and then there's a reason to drink every day. There's like a dinner or a right. thing. So you end up for like 15 days drinking in a row. And I'm just like, I can't keep doing that. I'm 44. So I was like, I'm going to do January. It catches up to you, yeah. Yeah, but the other thing is like bear market year. So it's like, this is going to be a hard year. Got to work hard. Not just a bear market. It's also a recession. Well, yeah, it's a recession. a global depression. Global depression. Thank getting you, old uh, and just feeling like I've got to work hard. I just need a bit more focus. So it's like, okay, I've spent the last four years getting fat and drinking. Now I'm going to like reverse course, drink that's a bit good. less. Um, yeah, so I like, I'm not going to do January. That's why we're not having a seven bottles of whiskey now. You yeah. can have your liquid death. I have my I have my water. And your apple. But anyway, that's great. Yeah. You got to take care of your body. You only have one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm too old, though. I mean, you're just a young pup. Starting to feel the age as well. <sighs> man, you got some time to go. Anyway, good to see you, man. How has your 2023 been? All seven days. 2023. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're supposed to be talking about 2022, but... 2023 has been a good year. Yeah, Bitcoin's up. It's already a good <laughs> Bitcoin's up. Um, this is, you know, I mean, Bitcoin's in an interesting place. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it's uh, it's an interesting year. It's 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 been good. We're doing great things at Bitcoin Park. You were there earlier today. Mm-hmm. Um, the community is vibrant. It's strong, which is amazing in a bear market and a recession. But, uh, you know, it's... It's an optimistic year, but it's also a bit of an anxious year, and we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, I think everyone's feels like that. There's a lot to be anxious about because uh, it was a rough last six months of this year, and uh, a lot of there's going to be less money circulating because of that. And like you say, it's a recession. There's a cost of living crisis. Uh, you're gonna have to work hard a few dollars, your pounds, your sets. Uh, but that's like. It was the same in 2019. You just have to grind and work through What, the bear market? The fact that, like, the mentality is like, okay, got to grind and work hard. Well, what people don't realize, and I'll preface this with saying, I'm pretty much all in Bitcoin. If anything, it goes past all in because I've, like, dedicated my life to Bitcoin education. So that would be pretty horrible if if Bitcoin failed. So uh, I... I think people do not realize that usually in these bear markets, this is, we're about to enter the period where essentially this becomes a long, slow grind. There's no quick recovery that happens. Um, And you just, you know, you stick in there. And that's why I just keep repeating, stay humble, stack sats, right? Because you just keep one foot in front of the next and you just keep pushing forward. they tend to be very long. People tend in the beginning to, uh, you know, say, oh, like, this is not bad. But it's that long, boring grind down that really hurts. Um, and a lot of people burn out during that period. Now, this is the first time Bitcoin was born out of the last Great Recession, right, 2008. It was born right after that. So this is the first time. Bitcoin's been in existence in a, the largest macro bull run 
in human history. Like we've never had that kind of situation before and Bitcoin's existed through that whole period. Um, now it seems like we're gonna start to pay the consequences of the cheap money that led that bull run the whole time. And it's yet to be seen how Bitcoin reacts in that environment. Now, I think Bitcoin's the ideal safe haven. I think it's born for this environment. If we see bank runs, which we probably will see, um, if we see more uh, global trade issues in terms of, of trust, right? You see, already see Russia, you already see China um, trying to do trade outside of the dollar system. These types of things is what Bitcoin was born for, right? And this is why I think Bitcoin has value in the first place. But in the meantime, we're seeing cheap money policies over, over two decades of cheap money policies get reversed. And all that money's drying up. People are losing their jobs outside of Bitcoin. Uh, people are going to start spending less. It seems like most people in, and we kind of saw this with the COVID situation, where it seemed kind of obvious that COVID was going to sweep the world in early 2020. But anyone who was saying so was called crazy. And you kind of just thought to yourself, um, well, how, how, how come not everyone else is freaking out about it? And then we like slow rolled into people freaking out about it. It took months for people to freak out about it. I don't think this idea of like the recession, the actual recession, maybe a depression has really hit people yet. And so we haven't really seen the consequences of that yet by any means. So I think we could, we could com completely blown off, um, off guard by how this year plays out. And hopefully I'm wrong. You know, hopefully we don't enter, you know, we don't continue a recession. If we're already in a recession, we don't enter depression. We recover. Bitcoin, you know, adoption goes crazy and everyone wins. But there's a, there's a very good chance, in my opinion, that this is a longer drawn out kind of um, situation than, than we're used to in, in previous Bitcoin bear markets. Do you know what I think happens? What? Just the same four-year pattern. Just four-year pattern. I just think the same thing's going to happen again. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Okay, so we uh, we usually reviewed the, the previous year. Uh, we can go month by month. We can go topic by topic. There's a lot to go through. Um, I was I was optimistic at the start of the year. Um, price was good. Companies were raising money. Cool shit was being built. Downloads were good. We were traveling and making good shows. Like everything felt good. Felt like a good start to the year. Did you feel that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, on the on downloads, like have you already seen? You've already seen like activity across everything drop today. Yes and no. Um, have you got our download chart? Yep, we can when show you, you our downloads. It's like we don't hide anything. It's uh, we did. And then it came back. But what we tend to find is like in a bull market, we will 5x whatever. And then during a bear market, we maybe lose 20, 25%. But our downloads look like a Bitcoin chart right. normally. Yeah, that's what I see too. Yeah. I mean, you could already feel that activity's down significantly on like Twitter and. Yeah, but, but we're. Memples. But we're. We're starting. To, we're seeing a recovery in downloads, which is kind of interesting. Um, have you got it, Danny? Yeah, yeah. I show you this. Does it come up here? Yeah, should do. Now, if you go like um, 
Do year in go, review, go, right? Go almost like 20. Yeah, but if you go almost go 2020, so you have context. Even 2019, go January 2019. And then if you do it by month. So you can see the run-up, right? Right, the last month doesn't count because it's just not yeah, added. Yeah. And then so what, what was that 2022 spike, Danny? So that was March 20, 2022 when the f- price first ran up. And then it dropped, but then it came back up. It didn't throw our downloads, but you can see, right? So that they're the they're, they're the two like you see that you see those two spikes, yeah. Yeah. And then obviously of that second spike, it drops, and so we went from. I mean, this is just audio, but like, what was that? One point one million, one point oh five six, and then we've gone down to seven seventy five, right? So that's right. about a twenty five percent drop. But then we started to see a recovery. I mean, like December was shit, but expected because of the holiday period. Right, it, it usually yeah. is. Uh, but, you know, we, we kind of, we had our third biggest month ever in well, November. No, November. But you know what happened in November. I mean, we'll get to it in the year review, but that's when SBF went down. Yeah, and we had some content around that. But we also had, the other thing is like we were traveling. We were but that was like, that's like a classic, like Twitter was banging. Yeah. In November, right? And then now it's become more of a ghost town. This is like classic bear market situation, right? Now it's going to grind. The activity is going to grind down probably for a bit. Yeah, I think I think we know the content people want to for us to make to go sideways, like to maintain that like over. Oh yeah, well hopefully you can overcome that. But the point is is that we we always see in bear markets we see Bitcoin activity go down across the board. Yeah, um, and. This this time will be no different, right? In that regard, and like the right now, we're kind of in the lull, and then it's just gonna lull, 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 lull for a bit. Yeah, like, and is it a year? Is it two years? Like, only the rider dies like stay around during this period, and those people, you know, there's a meme. Uh, there's a meme. Bear markets are for building. Yeah, but what the meme and every meme is based in reality, as including that one, and but what the meme doesn't tell you is that most people get burnt out or wrecked during that bear cycle. Um, the builders that build during the bear market and then emerge the other side, there's a survivorship bias because those are the only ones we see. They're usually very successful. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is the majority of building gets just absolutely destroyed during that period. It's also like the other meme, the bear markets are for surviving. Yeah. It's survival. Uh, it's just and, straight survival. Yeah, and uh, we interviewed Danny Scott from Coin Corner recently. Do you know Danny? Yeah, yeah. Danny's great. Danny's great. And it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, you can compare it to some of the companies who've raised lots of capital. They haven't raised any capital, really. And uh, they've just gone for the slow grind, will build up. And in doing so, you know, when you see another company's laying off a third of their staff or... I mean, he didn't really talk about laying off staff. And, no. and I think they've grown, if anything. Yeah, and he, you know, they, they've just during the bull market they've built out products, right? And you know, they've built a company that you know they'll have a they'll have to grind the year out, but they've not grown so quickly that they've got to like uh, cut back a huge amount. And we were similar. Yeah, we where companies have really leveraged the bull market and wrecked themselves, you know. We've just conserved capital. The money we've made, we put in the bank, and that's going to be what we use to survive this year. We'll have some income. We'll diversify what we do. But, uh, you know, I think not enough companies prepared like that. It was Ledger. I learned the story about Ledger, um, what they did back in 2017. Um, 
where everything went crazy, like how they would prepare for the next uh, kind of bull bear cycle. And the main impact on them was actually logistics. It's like, how do you build a company that suddenly has to have a massive amount of supply of inventory, yeah. massive amount of customer service that they only need for a short period every yeah, that's years. The key is you have to be able to scale during the bull in a responsible way that you can scale back down. But it's also like managing, it's managing your cash flow. Yeah, managing risk, risk management. I just think some people, every time it comes to a bull market, they think there's not going to be another bear market this time. This, this I mean, time is different. We've heard so much of that uh, super cycle. Yeah, yeah, talked about that on there's this show. Always, it always, yeah. Yeah, I think the super cycle was slightly different. It was going to be like a, just a much bigger bear cycle, uh, bull cycle. Not that it, you wouldn't get to a bear cycle, but I kind of wish this whole bull bear thing would end. I know it's not going to because yeah, it's think human it, psychology, right? Yeah. But I kind of wish it would. Well, it might. It, it should, with ado- as adoption increases, it should, um, the, the volatility of it should uh, decrease. It should, it should stabilize as more people use it, as there's more adoption, as there's greater liquidity in the market. We'll pr- still see, because it's an actual free market, we'll still see, you know, uh, hills and valleys. Like, there'll still be pumps and dumps. Um, but the severity should reduce in the, in the scale of them. All right. Like, percentage-wise, right? Yeah. That's, that's my thought process when I think about it. But it's just, in an adoption phase, of course, you know, a ton of people are going to buy. It's a truly scarce asset. Sellers all evaporate because the price is pumping. People get greedy, then it gets over leveraged, then it dumps, all the weak hands are washed out, and then the cycle just kind of repeats itself. I, th- I think at the moment, one of the things I've got like a gut feel for is that um, it's a bigger problem now for the companies than the Bitcoiners. I'm not feeling like, when I talk to Bitcoiners, like they're feeling stressed or worried or whatever. I, but like you can see a lot of companies are struggling. And I think one of the reasons that might be, I think we've got a lot more Bitcoiners who come in who don't work for Bitcoin companies. So they've got their jobs outside. Like when we were down at Bitcoin Park today, I met a bunch of people, they don't work for Bitcoin companies. So they're Bitcoiners, but like their company they work for might be affected by the recession, but it's not affected by the Bitcoin price. And I feel like when I'm surrounded by Bitcoiners themselves, they're still like fairly positive. Companies is a different story. There's not a lot of capital and there's not a lot of activity. Yeah, I mean, so I was a, you know, a strong supporter of, I've always been a strong supporter of people, you know, people say like, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I want to do something to help Bitcoin, right? And I'm like, well, what do you do for a living? And they're like, I'm a doctor. I was like, okay, just be a doctor that accepts Bitcoin. Just keep, just keep being a doctor. Like, that's what you are, you know, stack yeah. sats, earn sats, you know, learn how to use your own node, hold your own keys. Like, that makes complete sense. And during bear cycles, it's fantastic because your source of income is completely independent of Bitcoin. Um, I think we've seen a different phenomenon as well, which is, first of all, we've seen the emergence of this almost like Bitcoin-only industry, right? There was early Bitcoin companies. They mostly went to shitcoinery. Then there was a lot of shitcoin companies that got birthed. And then there was like this pushback to the fundamentals and to the basics. And there's all these brand new, relatively new Bitcoin companies. And they're staffed mostly by ideological Bitcoiners, um, where people were actually deciding they wanted to work in Bitcoin. And we've never seen this many people kind of work in Bitcoin, right? That's almost the change. 
So we have all these new Bitcoin companies. We have all these new Bitcoiners working at these companies. And I will say this is the first bear cycle that I've ever had friends laid off, lose their jobs, right? Um, and I think it's a combination of those two phenomenon. And it definitely makes it more difficult from a personal level when you have that kind of situation. Yep. But I would say because we're in a recession, this will also be one of, it'll be the first cycle where there's mass layoffs outside of Bitcoin too. So it doesn't necessarily insulate you from that. Um, I will say that from my experience at 1031, which we're Bitcoin only venture fund, which by the way, is a relatively new concept as well, right? Usually you have the A16Zs of the world, the Sequoias of the world, the multi-coin capitals paradigm, and they're just investing in world coin and all of these dystopian shit coins and token schemes so they can dump on retail. This idea of a Bitcoin only venture fund um, is that the Bitcoin companies that are that we support and also the greater Bitcoin industry as a whole, it has been way, way, way more prudent about risk management and building their businesses on solid foundations than the greater quote unquote crypto ecosystem. Like there's a lot of strength out there, even though we're in this kind of unknown situation in terms of capital markets. And, and a perfect example of that is the issues we're seeing happening with Digital Currency Group right now, which is this massive titan that's existed in the Bitcoin industry and the shitcoin industry for a long time is that every other bear cycle, they had access to cheap capital to bail themselves out, whether that's borrowing and raising equity. This is the first cycle that's not the case. So um, at 1031, we're going to still you know, operate in this environment, and we, we plan to operate in this environment as much as we possibly can in terms of getting funding to Bitcoin companies. But we've also been talking to them a lot about making sure that their business is in, and we've been talking about this with them for almost the whole year now, is making sure your business is in a situation where if you can't get any external capital, if you're in a situation where you can't get any external capital, you can survive a three-year bear market and ideally thrive in that situation, right? And the overwhelming majority of the companies uh, that we talked to are in the Bitcoin industry are able to do that because they play, they didn't play high time preference games. They didn't play these, you know, get rich quick games. They played these low time preference, long-term thinking games. And as a result, they're sitting in relatively solid footing entering a potential global depression and a Bitcoin bear market. Um, and they're able to build in that environment to ideally take advantage of, of the next bull. Yeah, and th that kind of list of companies that have gone through a rough, say, six to eight months, uh, I can't think of a single Bitcoin company that's blown up, created news because they've blown up because they've over-leveraged themselves. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I just And it, look, I think if it happens, it'll be more like a, these companies, if it's a Bitcoin company, they just, they might run out of runway and they might just, Right, burn out, and you know it ends. But but they'll run out of runway because it's just not as uh, not uh, enough activity in the market. And hopefully, when they do, like it, just be a case of you know, some people lose their jobs and some technology goes. But it's not a situation where they fucked a whole bunch of other people, which is obviously what we've seen with other companies. The, the collateral damage that's been done to other companies, individuals, Bitcoiners, even crypto people, like this collateral damage from poor decision-making. I feel like, at least with these Bitcoin companies, if something ends for them, 
there's not like this collateral collateral damage. I can't think of a single. I, but I mean, I don't think it's it's Bitcoin only doesn't necessarily make you immune to that. No, but just um, just don't think it's happened. It could basically where you see the real bad collateral damage is when you have custodial accounts, mm. and most custodial accounts tend to be exchanges which tend to support every shitcoin under the under the sun, right? But the same risk is maintained with any business that operates on a custodial relationship. No, of course, but like. Like if something like a river failed, I don't believe when river fails, it's like, oh, by the way, we've lost all your funds. I believe a company like River... Well, that operates. just speaks to the integrity of of Alex and his team. Yeah. I, it's not because they're Bitcoin only, though. No, but the, I think there is like a correlation between Bitcoin only and the principles of which you operate the business and the risks you take. I think there's a correlation there. You know, I would probably agree with that. Yeah. This is part of our thesis yeah. in the first place. It's part of why I've, you know, dedicated my life to Bitcoin education. Yeah, and and one of the tricky things I think for these companies is also like we there hasn't been a massive build out of regular and consistent usage of Bitcoin that some of these companies may rely on as well. Um, you know, maybe they're a payment processing company and there just isn't enough people constantly spending, or there isn't enough money yet being made of Lightning transactions. So, you know some of these companies are kind of waiting for the market to come to them and they're going to have to have some patience and some resiliency to get through. Yeah, I mean, the biggest issue is twofold that I've seen from my experience is, first of all, we're all Bitcoiners. Uh, If you're running a Bitcoin-only business, you're an ideological Bitcoiner because every VC, all the crypto VCs, all the regular VCs or whatever, any advisor, they'll all tell you, just add all the different coins. Oh, you don't have Ethereum on it? Like, you have to do it, right? So the only people that don't do it are are usually ideological Bitcoiners. And what is one consistent thing with most ideological Bitcoiners is that we tend to keep a large portion, if not our entire net worth in Bitcoin. And the same goes true with the Bitcoin companies, right? A lot of Bitcoin companies, um, and it makes sense to me because it's the same way with the, the companies that, that I run, is that they're, all, they're a method for stacking sets, right? Like you want to stack Bitcoin, and that company ends up holding more and more of their Bitcoin on their balance sheet, right? So the question is actual, what is their portfolio management? Are they all in Bitcoin in their reserves? And does that mean their reserves are down 80%? And that is coupled with this idea that a lot of companies were built off the back of this idea that you could always raise money. It was just a question of val- valuation or interest rate, right? Yeah. And that just doesn't exist right now. Even Coinbase is having trouble raising uh borrowing money. Um, I know somebody's not having trouble. And Coinbase is having trouble borrowing money and they're multi-billion dollar publicly traded company, right? So any company that was built off the back of this idea that we don't have to be profitable yet, we could be profitable in the future, this like idea of growth, growth at all costs that's fueled by cheap money, those companies are in trouble. It just tends to be that most of those types of companies aren't Bitcoin companies. And I th- think there is a correlation there. There's there's this idea of this like low time preference kind of long-term building, uh, you know, building real businesses with fundamental value kind of uh, mindset. Well, if you refer back to Coin Corner and, and Danny Scott, um, I'm sure like in the last two years, if they wanted to raise money, they could have. And their valuation could have gone up. And they could have hired a bunch of people. 
And then they could have maybe avoided shit coins, but like maybe the pressure would have got to them. It's like, shit, we've raised this money. We've got to hit this milestone because we need to raise our next round. Because I think one of the problems of, I have no issue with people raising money, but one of the pressures that come with raising money is like, they want you to deploy that capital quickly so you raise your next round. Right. And then deploy that. And so you raise your next round because they know in each round the valuation goes up. And at some point you hope, or they hope, that you're going to either sell or you're going to uh, IPO. I mean, I think yeah, that, they're both sales, exit liquidity. Yeah. And that, I mean, that Getting I think out. that's the classic problem that happened with BlockFi, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Um, whereas someone like Coin Corner, they're like, well, we've got this much money in the bank. We're bringing this much money in. This is this. What costs to run us? Okay. How long can we operate? What are our risks? No one can tell us what to do. You know, we haven't, we haven't got somebody with a seat on our board pressuring us, telling us to raise more capital. They've, just Danny and that team have said, what is the core technology we should build? How do we stay independent? How do we grow our company? And they're just, they're just doing it. They're just doing it on their time. It's a good old-fashioned cash flow positive business. Yeah. And that's, um, it's amazing how novel that is nowadays. Yeah. But it's, uh, look, there is all that, also that you need to consider coming into a bear market. It's like, yeah, cash flow positive business, but cash flow can get hit hard during a year like this year. Have you, you know, have you got reserve capital or what happens when things get right. difficult? Like, you know, it's a situation we're facing with this podcast. Like, there isn't as much sponsorship money available. What do we do? Like, what do we do over the next year? How do we carry on doing what we're doing? How do we finance it? Now, we've conserved capital from the last year, but like, there's still things we have to think about. You know, we have to rethink our strategy for the next year. Like, I think, I think that's a lot of people are going through, and uh, be interesting to see how it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think we're fortunate that there are a lot of Bitcoin businesses that were built with that mindset. Bring that um, in a bit, just so I can hear you. I don't want to touch it though. You can touch it to bring it in. <laughs> when it's here, you sound different from when it's here. Okay. I you mean, don't have to lean in. You can just bring it to you. I've done thousands of hours of podcasting, yeah. but thanks for the. Just make sure the mic's in front of your mouth. I mean, it's. <laughs> But yeah, no, I think there's a lot of Bitcoin businesses that have done that, and uh, it's good for everybody involved. Uh, do you want to talk about Bitcoin Park before we get into this stuff? Because I feel like what you guys are doing there is cool, and uh, I'd rather people hear about that as early as possible, and also like you get that tail off of listeners during the show. What do you, what do you think about Bitcoin Park? Uh, I think it's bold. Um, I think... Uh, uh, I wish I had something like that in Bedford, but there isn't a market for it. Um, I think it's cool coming into Nashville knowing that exists. And there's a, I th I basically, I think you've created something where a community can build around it, which is very cool. Um, I think it'll eventually be, there'll be something like a Bitcoin park in every state and every major city, whether that's you guys franchising it eventually or other people just going, that's fucking cool, we're going to do it. But either way, I see Hopefully it coming. Hopefully the latter. Yeah, to and, be honest. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we've managed in Bedford once a month to have a meetup of fifty to sixty people come, which is for me is incredible. Yeah, that's really good in, in like fucking Bedford. But there's no way we could build a Bitcoin park yet. But eventually, I I, I just like this idea of things being built up around meetups and communities now. Physical the, spaces. Yeah. So I would say I would say Bitcoin Park is. Is kind of is me and Rod's Real Bedford. Yes, um, it's just it might be crazy enough that it just works, right? Yeah, uh, it's a, it was a bold plan, and it's this idea of having a proper 
center for the community, a campus for the community in Nashville, uh, focused on empowering the local community around us and also Bitcoin. Um, we have members, we do events, uh, we have an event space, we have multiple podcasting studios, we have private offices, we have co-working space, we have a little coffee shop. Uh, that's where our, our meetups are held. Uh, we do two meetups a, a month right now, hopefully expanding that. Um, we have this big mining event coming up. So like this, I, we have this idea of um, you have these topical meetups every month and that topic is the same every year. So you can plan around that. Like these are the topics that I enjoy. And then for some of the main topics like mining, um, we will have a summit that follows that meetup that's open to the public. So you have like a you have a full week of basically discussions and collaborations. Then we take a lot of those live conversations and we strip them of the Q&A because we always do Q&A at all of our events. I think Q&A is extremely empowering. And we strip them of the we strip them of the Q&A and then we post them to the Bitcoin Park podcast feed. So you can just search Bitcoin Park in your favorite podcast app and listen to those conversations. But uh, it's been amazing to build it. It's been about six months now uh, in a bear market and a recession. Um, our community here is extremely vibrant. It's growing. It's stronger. We see people. I just recorded a dispatch with two, uh, a lovely couple that often come down from Louisville. They drive with the dog. That was a different couple oh, that okay. came down from Detroit with their dog. Yeah. Um, and they, they make the drive from Louisville three hours to come to Bitcoin park, uh, pretty much monthly. Um, so it's this, it's just this great space where, you know, we're all like collaborating and meeting each other and, and shaking each other's hands and seeing each other in person. And it's been extremely empowering. And you mentioned earlier, like we, it'd be great to see Bitcoin parks in all these different cities around the world. And one thing that I noticed was during COVID um, and the response to COVID during the lockdowns, we were encouraged not to be uh, in physical spaces together. But the Bitcoin meetup scene around the world, this grassroots Bitcoin scene around the world was growing and growing and growing. And it, it almost it completely bucked the trend. Instead, meetups were growing bigger than ever. You had 60 people in Bedford. Yeah, um, We were seeing in Nashville, we were going up. It was like 100 people, then 150 people, then 200 people. And this grassroots Bitcoin adoption was just accelerating, just people, neighbors helping neighbors. Uh, so in September... Our, the first event we held at Bitcoin Park, we called Grassroots Bitcoin, and that's an annual event. And we had um, over 100 meetup organizers came to Bitcoin Park uh, completely free of charge. We collaborated. We had conversations. We discussed. We just had fun, drinks, food. Um, and then they all went back to their cities and to their meetups, right? And the cool part about all of this is that it's truly grassroots, that it really embodies the ethos of Bitcoin, this idea that you know, it's not centrally controlled. There's all these different local communities that are slightly different and they have different priorities and they're built a little bit different way. But at the same time, we're all kind of connected on the same um, mission to have just an independent money uh, that, it, that is not corporate or state controlled. And also just this greater free and open source movement. We had Seed Signer, the, the, two, the two men who are the maintainers of Seed Signer came down to Bitcoin Park and we had people as young as 13, as old as 55, building their own hardware wallets. As old as 55, uh, fuck man. That's, that's like pretty cool. That's like 11 years for me. <laughs> what did you say? 42, as old as 42, 44. <laughs> I, I think you missed a part of it as well. 
in what I've noticed with going to some of these meetups now is the amount of conversation that isn't about Bitcoin. Yes. Which I think is really important in this become this kind of like all these uh, asymmetric topics. Um, like uh, my first one I went, it was Texas Slim talking about the beef yeah, initiative. Yeah, so we just had the beef initiative there, yeah. which is all about supporting local farmers, understanding where your food comes, eating better food. Um, yeah, all these tangential but important topics about empowering individuals and empowering communities. That's kind of the glue that holds it all together. I mean, one conversation um, I had today there was with a guy about homeschooling. Um, I think there's... Yeah, that's all- what we just did the dispatch on. Oh, is that couple? Yeah. Ah, yeah, they were well, great. The making the Scott. board game. The bo- best board game I've ever played. They said they're going to take best the Best Bitcoin board game I've ever played. What's it called? Like whole, Hodl- up Hodl up freemarketkids.com. There. Yeah, I love it. Is, it. is it available? I don't yes, know. it is. You can pay for Bitcoin or in in credit card. And I don't say that lightly. Like I've played a lot of Bitcoin games that people have asked me for feedback for. This one is a fantastic game. It's a really good game. All right, we'll check that Without out. the Bitcoin component, but it's still even with the Bitcoin component, it adds this whole educational element. It's great. The, and also I just did an episode with them on sale dispatch. So okay. check it out. But um, what I'm go- where I'm going with this, and I think the great thing about uh, Bitcoin Park and the thing that will take it, uh, make it even more successful or, or help it uh, with this growth is that I don't think you have to be somebody who cares about Bitcoin as money to come there and get some value from it. You might come there for a uh, beef initiative event with Texas Slim, or you might come there for another thing and then learn about Bitcoin and get into it. But it's for me, it's, it's so much better that we turn up at these events and we're not just talking about 21 million and UTXOs. We're talking about other subjects. It's becoming... There's, there's like this whole group of other subjects just outside of Bitcoin. And I think that is important for it to grow. And I know that's one of the things I've got out of it, um, especially today, like down at yours. No, yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. I would love to have all these different types of events. And one of the things we're trying to do is so it's a member-supported initiative, yeah. right? So that we have this idea of 100 in-state members that pay annual dues and then 100 out-of-state members that pay annual dues. And together, we all can cover the cost of it because it's an expensive endeavor. Um Part of that concept is empowering the individual members to have their own events there, right? Where they have the support of Bitcoin Park, but they handle the programming themselves, right? It goes up on the meetup page, everything like that, but they own it, right? So I could see uh, Scott and Tali, um, I could see them doing, uh, right now we're already planning on doing game nights, right? but I could see them doing homeschooling things there, right? And this idea is that from there can expand kind of organically of all the different topics and conversations that's happening. And amid those members, they're not just all these like stereotypical ideological Bitcoiners, right? It's lawyers and real estate brokers and just people of all different walks of life. Um, And some of them are just like Bitcoin curious. But if they spend enough time there, I have a feeling that they're going to, end up loving Bitcoin. Have you noticed uh, people coming in who aren't really Bitcoiners, who are kind of intrigued by what's going on? Have you managed to tap into like the non-Bitcoin local? Yeah, we get a lot of... A physical location is powerful, right? Yeah. Um, that people can just walk in and talk to people and just have conversations. Uh, is just extremely empowering. I don't think people... Uh, it, can, it can't be overstated how important that physical aspect is. 
And that's why I would love to see, I mean, I always, I joke around all the time that like, the ideal situation is not that uh, I'm building Bitcoin Park. The ideal situation would be someone else was building Bitcoin Park and I could just go to Bitcoin Park, right? Like as many, I want as many of these physical spaces as possible all around the world. Um, so that no matter where you are, you can just, you can go there, you can work, you can collaborate, you can just have a good time. Um, like that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, I obviously want to do something similar in Bedford, but based around football. Yeah. Like I want to build a ground with training pitches and a gym and people That's can awesome. come in there and look after their fitness and kids can come train and, you know, our ladies team could come and train. We'd love to have like a disability team, but it's all based around football for me. But in doing so, we have our Bitcoin events and people can come and learn about Bitcoin or learn about diet. Like it is, I think it, it in some ways it is similar to what you're doing. It's similar to Bitcoin Beach. But like having these different edges that like relate to the person running, I think that's what makes the difference. But okay, so like it, where, where do you want people to, uh, this is meant to be the end of the show, but we don't know. Where do you want people to go? How can people help support it? Bitcoinpark.co if you want more information. Um you can support us with Bitcoin there if you want to donate. You can apply to become a member there uh, if you want to support us annually and get all the member benefits that come with it. Um, you search Bitcoin Park in your favorite podcast app. A lot of our content gets posted there after events. Um, and then just come come check it out. Just come down to Nashville and have a good time. Nashville's fucking great, man. Yeah. I like it. I think it, if we were to ever base ourselves in one place, this this is up there. There you go. Well, it sounds like you're gonna you're gonna use this as one of your like your bases of operation in in the U.S. Right? I I think we most I mean, it's it's become New York, Nashville, Austin, Miami, L.A. But the two places that we can go to regularly, know we get the right people. The other thing, interesting thing, is people want to come in. So like, if we go to New York. We'll get a few people, maybe get some people in. But like, if we go to Na Nashville, they can make a whole thing about it. They can fly in, they can do the show, they can come to Bitcoin Park, there right. might be a meetup on. Like, there's more of a reason in Nashville, same with Austin. And so those locations we do might become smaller. Like, I, could, I don't know about you, Danny, I could see New York dropping off for us. Yeah, LA too. But the best thing about, well, one of the good things about Nashville is it's also, it's not a very far flight from anywhere. So if you are flying in, it's pretty easy no matter where you are. Yeah, centrally located. Yeah. Yeah. It's Nashville, Nashville and Austin, really, isn't it? Yeah, they're the main two. Um, Miami, really. Miami's pretty good. Although that's getting less, too. You think? Yeah, I think so. Or maybe we've just tapped that audience a lot. Yeah, also, it's a long way to... Like, if you're coming from California, it's a long yeah. way to fly. We're trying also... Like, one of the things we've been trying to do is actually realize, like, actually, we need to support the UK. Like, we come here to make the show. We did our first sprint in the UK recently. Uh, got people from European. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just like, okay, how do we build that up? How do we how do we promote what people are doing there? Like how do I mean Danny Scott and um, uh, Molly from CoinCon have done so much. It's like well they've worked so hard and we're off here supporting the Americans. That's wrong. Like how right. do we, how do we help them support them? And people like Ben Ark as well. Yeah, Ben Ark. Oh, I love Ben. Ben's amazing. And I actually Grateful think um, Jim Duffy, who did the uh, Bitcoin event up in Edinburgh, he's like starting to build some things. He's starting to do some things. Like they did a great job with that event for a first ever event. And it's like, okay, well, we should probably be supporting that a bit more. And, it, it, you know, if it means like twice a year, it's like two less journeys a year, we can, be you know, well, same for you, you still got to fly. But it's even further to, for me. Yeah, that's, that's like good for us. I mean, I can't travel like this the rest of my life. It's, just, it's too much, man. Well, anyway, before we, uh, 
finish up the Bitcoin Park segment. I just yep. wanted for your listeners, February is open source. We're going to have open source week. So we have a great amount, great number of devs, awesome devs coming in for it. Um, and just people that are curious about Bitcoin. So uh, it'll be one of the better ones of the year if people are interested. All right. Well, uh, we'll put that all in the show notes and anything you need, you tell us, we'll help you. Don't touch the mic. Don't touch the mic. I did. I went, don't touch the mic. I've been pretty good about it. It's because you're here. You're making me want to touch the mic. I didn't used to touch the mic till you touched the mic. All right. Like, okay. 2002, January, we're January 2022. Everything's going great. Uh, Vibes are high. IMF urged El Salvador to drop Bitcoin. Makes sense to be expected. No one really. Was that a big thing? I mean, that's all that happened in January. Okay, fair Uh, enough. The interesting side of that is um, you probably don't listen to my show anymore, but I made a show with uh, Alex Gladstein about the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, I don't know if you read his article. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a fascinating explanation of how like Western nations have managed to uh, you know, support their economies and live these great lives right. based on uh, economic imperialism. I wasn't like, you know, some fuckeries going on, but the way he spelled it out, how in, they would indebt these nations to steal their resources. Right. It kind They're of basically loan sharks. Yeah. Lo- yeah. Loan sharks. Yeah. On a global scale. Yeah. To entire nations. Yeah. And so that, it kind of makes sense when the IMF is Yeah, of course. Like Bitcoin stands against everything that the IMF is. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's like the most obvious. The crazy thing is that it took them, you know, that this was what put it on their radar, right? And it took them so long to say something. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Big thing in February was the Canada truckers and the Bitcoin wallets. Everyone forgot that already. Yeah. I'm not sure, man. Like that comes up a lot with us. I mean, like yesterday, we what's that guy Vivek? Yeah, Ramswami. Yeah, even he brought it. He up. He brought it up. Yeah. Do you know him? No. Um, he brought it up. Like it, it comes up a lot. We had BTC, BTC sessions on recently. We talked about the whole well, thing. Of course, I mean, he was central to it. But we made like we didn't. We weren't going to make that show. We were going to make a show with him about educating people on Bitcoin, and then we we mentioned that, and then we made a whole show on it. I still get emails about it. I think. I think a lot of people have forgotten, but I think a lot of important people haven't forgotten and are using that. And they were saying, just remember what happened there. Just remember what happened there. Like what happened to people who were trying to protest? The Canadian trucker protest was a hard one for me because it, first of all, represented everything all the reasons why Bitcoin needs to exist in the first place, why you need a freedom money, why you need a money that cannot be stopped, uh, that cannot be seized. Um, we saw a Western government be angry against its people that were protesting. They were, they were doing peaceful protests and they weaponized the financial system against them. They closed their bank accounts. They forced companies that were accepting dollar donations uh, to seize the money or, and to close the fundraisers. They even went after people's, people who donated banks' accounts. So it was, it was a massive wake-up call, I would say, to a large portion of society why Bitcoin is needed in the first place. We heard many, many times, you know, this kind of thing happens in Venezuela or Iran or Russia or China. And everyone's like, oh, well, not in my country. It won't happen in my country, right? And for it to happen in Canada, adjacent to the United States, um, 
it I think it was a massive wake up call for people. Now, it hit me extra hard because it should be the moment that is ideal for Bitcoin, uh, where Bitcoin really excels. This idea of people being able to raise money globally, um, secure it, spend it, and use it as necessary. And to be frank, it, you know, it was a complete clusterfuck. Uh, there was a Bitcoin fundraiser that was raised, uh, the government went after the known people that were using it. The address, the Bitcoin address that was that was being used was reused. So it was very easy to track it on chain privacy wise. Uh, the Canadian government came out and said that no exchanges could interact with that Bitcoin. Uh, when it got distributed, every trucker that received Bitcoin was put on camera. So their identity was known. Um, it was a bit of a mess. It was a bit of a mess. At the end of the day, uh, the protests were, you know, they, they, were, they were squashed. Uh, these people weren't able to use the Bitcoin to actually help them in their protests for the most part. Um, and a terrific opportunity for Bitcoin to empower individuals was missed. And it, and it, it hurt because that should be one of the easiest use cases for Bitcoin. This idea that if you are a protester, if you are a activist in a country and you want to raise funds, you should be able to easily do so in a private and secure fashion uh, without having kind of heavy technical expertise. And in this case, you know, some of the people involved were, you know, diehard Bitcoiners that, that educate others, right? That know most of the best practices. And even they had difficulty doing it. Um, so that was disappointing. I, I don't want to be a complete doomer on it. Uh, in the follow-up of that, we recorded a Citadel Dispatch was uh, completely focused on how do you raise donations in that environment. And it's relatively accessible for people to do that. But that's not what happened, right? And uh, yeah, it was just, uh, for me, it was like, to me, it was the moment... Uh, I, I and you could go back. The crazy thing about rabbit hole recap is like it's like a time capsule because we've done that's my weekly news show. We've done that every week for four and a half years, me and Marty. And if you can go back to any week in time and and kind of see how we were feeling at that time, right? And I was crushed. I was I was deflated. And on top of that, I for a moment there it seemed like the U.S. might jump in and be involved with it as well. And it kind of seemed like the moment where the state goes against Bitcoin very hard in America and Canada, and they didn't, but they came close. They came close and I, it just felt like we were not prepared. The Bitcoin network would be fine. Uh, it's built to handle this kind of thing. Uh, it's extremely resistant to change by design, but individual Bitcoiners would have felt significant uh, pain in that situation, I think. What if the, the fundraising had have been successful, mistakes hadn't been made, the money had got to the protesters, they were able to use it, and it lengthened the protest to the point where Bitcoin was so on the radar of the Trudeau government that they actually went fully against Bitcoin and banned it? Like, are we, uh, like, are we ready... Are we ready 
yet for that scenario. Like, like I said, I think the Bitcoin network is. Yeah, the, um, yeah. I think the vulnerability is on individual Bitcoiners in a type of, you know, banned situation. Um, because sometimes, like, and sometimes I think maybe you need uh, a people revolution first. And I think we're kind of heading towards that was a people revolution. We're seeing serious threats to the Trudeau government. What's that guy's name? Polivier? Polivier? Yeah. Yeah, he's like, like uh, he's a Bitcoiner. You know, he's gaining ground. There's a good chance he might become the next prime minister. Like maybe it needs to come from the people first and Bitcoin just continues to grow in adoption and resilience. But my point is, is not the specific Canadian situation. My point is, is this has already been happening around the world. And it was just very visible of the of 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 the failure of Bitcoin to be very empowering in that situation it was very visible to a lot more people than it was in other situations, right? So I do a lot of work helping activists use and raise Bitcoin in adversarial hostile environments. This like this this concept of using Bitcoin in an environment where your government doesn't want you to use Bitcoin and doesn't want you to use the banking system, right? And the major vulnerability that those people have is on the privacy side. And it's because, so I was talking to Navalny's people, right? And Navalny is the major opposition leader to Putin. They've been completely cut out of the banking system, but they've been raising Bitcoin for years, but they reuse the same exact address. So every donation that goes to their address is connected on the blockchain, right? And I said to one someone on their team, I said, you know, if you want me to sit down with you for an hour, like I can show you how to do this, I was going to basically switch them to BTC Pay Server, which we go over in that Silo Dispatch episode, which is why I recorded the Dispatch episode in addition to it. So I had somewhere to send people instead of saying, you know, let's have an hour-long conversation. I was like, I can set it up for you so your donor's privacy is good or better, you know, much better. And they said, no, it's unnecessary. We've been doing it this way for years. Putin can't stop it, right? Because he can't. He literally cannot block the transaction. Now, where does that privacy shortfall hurt? Putin goes to Binance, goes, this is Navalny's address. Tell me everyone who gave you their ID, their KYC information, and sent money from Binance to this address. Binance just handed over all that information. So Putin now knows exactly who donated to his opposition candidate. And then he can go after them through all the different means at his disposal, whether it's throwing you in jail, work camp, closing your bank accounts, seizing your house, seizing your car. All of these different things are at his disposal, even though he can't seize your Bitcoin by breaking your kneecaps, right? And can't block you from sending to Navalny. That privacy shortcoming, that privacy failure put real people at risk in hostile environments. And that happens all over the world almost every day because Bitcoin is useful for those situations, but it's harder to use privately. And that's what happened in Canada, right? So all these people that donate, and a lot of people probably donated from Strike and Cash App and all this other stuff. And that's not even, you know, very technical privacy, you know, breaks, right? That's just... Okay, this is the address for the donations. This is the address, you know, who's sent here. Let's hit all the, if the U.S. government wanted to go after it, they could have found out, you know, probably the, you know, 60, 70% of the people who donated. Um, to. But it just never went to that step. They just went for the people who received it and were managing the funds. 
Yeah. Just really sad. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which, you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team of services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Yeah, but privacy is also another thing under attack. I mean, we saw that with the Tornado Cash dev get arrested. I think privacy. I think the privacy of Bitcoin is what governments fear the most. Not knowing, they just want to know everything. They want to scoop up every yeah. piece of information about you. Um, which is why I think, um, like I've thought and discussed the idea that I think you win the war for the twenty-one million first, and then you win the war for privacy. I think they're the two major wars within Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is. You win adoption through twenty-one million. You win adoption through good, good money first. Right, scarce money. Yeah, scarce money. You know, maybe the meme will be came for the games, stayed for the privacy. And once Bitcoin is you know, so ubiquitous that it can't be banned, stopped. Everyone's using it. Everyone appreciates it, or like a large majority. 
then it's hard to prevent people having privacy on it. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this at length the last time. Did we? Uh, it was literally all we talked about. Did we go 21 right, million Danny? and then privacy? Yeah, that was pretty much the whole it, show. People loved it. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Now I'm holding the mic. Um, <laughs> but uh, We should have a... Uh, they should just go back to that. What episode was that? Do you know what we should I, have I, done? We'll put it in the show notes. If yeah. we'd have had the whiskey, we should just have Just go yeah. back to that episode if you want to hear the privacy conversation. Yeah, Let's sh- move on to the next... Uh, yeah, the shot every time you touch the mic. That's what we should have done. <laughs> if we'd go. have drinking, we'd have been fucked. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, now it's closer to home. I thought, I can't believe I drove 20 minutes out and 30 minutes back. <laughs> well, that's because you fucking didn't ask the, you didn't use the diary entry. I literally have receipts. Okay, okay I'm going to continue. Let's, what's you the have next two thing? receipts. You just picked the wrong one. What's the next thing? I mean, like the next thing is like where we're probably going to jump around a bit because we can't really go month by month because uh, we've got the Luna uh, Foundation raising 1 billion, but really... we. <laughs> We're going to go from Luna to Luna crash to like everything crashing. So fucking Luna, man. I know. But like to me, that was the first. Did you get pie on your face on that one? Did you have podcasts where you were like, Luna's good for Bitcoin? I've got receipts. You have got receipts. I've I mean, receipts. we, don't, we shit, don't do podcasts like that. That shit stunk. <clears throat> no. Like people were really into it. They were like, this is great. You know, like it's Bitcoin buy pressure. He's buying Bitcoin. He's saying he's going to back his, Dude. his quote unquote stable coin with Bitcoin. I've talked about that two, got a lot of people. I've talked about two things positively that aren't Bitcoin. I've talked about Monero, which I will stand by, and I've talked about the fact that it's very difficult to argue against the usefulness of stablecoins on uh, platforms that we might not like on Ethereum, on Tron, whatever. When there are people in the countries using it because it's the best money they can get, it's very hard to argue. Right, people want dollars. Yeah, people want dollars and they're easy access to dollars. That's the only thing I've done. The only time I talked about Luna was on, I was on Pump Show and he asked me about it. And I, by the way, I'd barely heard of it. I'd seen people talking about it on Twitter, but because it's a shitcoin, I just don't pay attention to it. Um, well, so like you had Luna, the shitcoin, and then Terra was the quote unquote stable coin pegged to the yeah. dollar backed by Luna. Yeah, whatever it was. Again, I've still not actually looked at it that much. And then he asked me about it. And I said, did I say, I said, it sounds like a scam. That's yeah, it I just said. reeked of scam. Yeah, it just sounds like a Ponzi or scam. Well, so the argument Have you that, got the video? I mean, I can find it. The argument I remember people saying at the time that caught up a lot of people was, how is this different than MicroStrategy buying Bitcoin? Because he was buying Bitcoin. Like, how is this different than a company buying Bitcoin? Because he bought billions of dollars of Bitcoin at the time. Um, yeah, look, if he wants to buy a bunch of Bitcoin, fine. Look, if look, no, I agree. The whole thing reeked of scam, but I'm saying that was, the argument wasn't even the stable coin or the shit coin. It was, there was a lot of Bitcoiners that otherwise consider themselves Bitcoin maximalists that were suggesting that it was exactly the same as a microstrategy buying Bitcoin. Um, and I remember because I was having these conversations and I was like, do not... Um, <laughs> I don't know who... I was advising some. I was advising someone who was thinking about making content about Luna, and they were making the argument that it was similar to MicroStrategy. I was like, "No, dude, it's a fucking shitcoin scam." Um, and they dodged a bullet on that one, but it caught a lot of people. A lot of people got caught up in that. There's probably so many receipts out there. Yeah, listen, uh, I during the bull run, I got caught up in the excitement. I thought Tesla buying loads of Bitcoin was exciting. I thought MicroStrategy... Yeah, all caps tweets about it. Yeah, but like one thing I've realized... One thing I've realized is that I think the biggest hodlers are the people with the smallest amount of Bitcoin. You've got a small amount. There's no point selling it. Sorry, the smallest holders are the hardest hodlers, right? I think outside of Michael Saylor, I think 
anyone with a big density of Bitcoin, if something goes wrong, they're going to maybe have to sell that Bitcoin. The, the funniest and saddest thing about that guy, he sold all that Bitcoin to defend the price and it made no difference. He might as well have not sold the Bitcoin. He yeah, wasted that Bitcoin. Yeah, we don't know Bitcoin. if he sold it all. I mean... He probably kept a bunch of it. Maybe. He said he sold it all. I mean, wasn't it tracked? I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think we ever have receipts on that. Well, the Bitcoin uh, price well, was dumping. Maybe we did. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, the Bitcoin price was dumping at the time. And like, I had a lot. Did you find that? No, it's not there. I can't find it. But um, it, it never happened. No, it did. If you got it, like, where did you go on Twitter? Because I think I put it as a tweet. Oh, did you? No, I saw it on, I was looking on YouTube. Yeah, if you go into my Twitter and you and do the advanced search. We believe you, Peter. No, it I, happened. I was there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, we believe Danny. <laughs> okay. I'll be interested to see what it. I say, though. But the point is, the point is, um, the Bitcoin wasn't actually backing it. Like he could, he was saying he was buying, I think Luna with it, and then Luna was backing. But it was the same thing that we ended up seeing with FTX, which is this, this like leveraged Ponzi over this centrally held shitcoin. And then as sell pressure goes, you just can't defend it, and it's just cascading liquidations all the way down. Absolutely. And 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 the thing that was really, and this is one of the risks that we've talked about in stablecoins in general, is that. I understand that there's a there's a value that people want dollars in countries where dollars are hard to get, um, and they're willing to take risks and trade offs for that. But I don't think they understand the risks that they're taking. I don't think they're properly educated on the trade offs they're making, and every stablecoin is ultimately or any kind of token that's backed by a real world physical asset, whether that's dollars or gold or oil or whatever, requires a centralized trust, trusted third party that is essentially managing the whole system. And you have to trust them that they are actually going to keep that peg real and you're able to actually use that for goods and services and not blacklist you and not rug you. And that's what we saw. So so with, but, but so the problem is, is yes, they can maintain a peg to a dollar on any given day, but also on any given day, they can just go to zero and they could be completely worthless to you. And we saw that happen with Terra, his stablecoin. And one of the things that was really sad to hear is I was, I was talking to some buddies in Argentina and the Argentinians love stablecoins because they're going through hyperinflation. It's yep. really hard to get dollars. Um, and a lot of them moved from Tether because of the Tether FUD to the quote unquote decentralized stablecoin that was Terra. And they all got rugged. Yeah. They all got absolutely crushed. And, but uh, to me, the bright side of that is, it's not a bright side, but my optimistic take is that people will go through these learning experiences and a lot of people will get burned. And that becomes better education than all the podcasts, YouTube videos, books combined is actually education by touching the stove. And as a result, a lot of them most likely now understand what the value prop of Bitcoin is. Yes, it's a free market. Yes, the purchasing power could go down 70%. Um, but ultimately, you're not trusting any entity with custody of your wealth. You're able to hold that yourself. It's a native bearer token um, that that can't be rugged like that. This is this is pretty much the first time I'd heard uh, about it. Does that mean that they're their uh, stablecoin is no longer fully backed. Well, so this is the whole thing is they never, they, uh, them specifically, but then we can talk about all stablecoins. They're not claiming that it's fully backed. They're not saying, hey, we're going to back 
one-to-one. What they're actually doing is they're only uh, backing about 30, 40% of it. And over time, as Bitcoin over a long period of time, it ends up being over-collateralized. See, this is, I mean, this is where it sounds super sketchy. They're basically saying, give us some money and we'll give you a printed coin in return and we'll kind of gamble away that money how we want. So this is, yeah. this, this is part of it the risk, sketchy. right? This is, this is where yeah. people end up saying Yeah, I mean, it was the first time I heard about it. I just thought it sounded sketchy. Sketchy as fuck. I never really paid much attention afterwards. Because I, I have, you know, just. Yeah, I can't believe it grew so big and, you know. If I was going to use a stable coin, it would be Tether or it would be maybe even Circle. Like USDC. Is that, is that USDC? Yeah. yeah. Because, like. We'll see. I, I mean, I wouldn't be. There's going to. All these stable coins are going to fail eventually. But if I was going to use one, I would want the most centralized, corporate registered stable coin there is. Yeah, but I mean, USDC has a different problem, right? Which is. Uh, which is that as soon as Tornado Cash got sanctioned, any USDC that had touched Tornado Cash all got blacklisted at the same time, and you just got completely rugged in that regard. Didn't um, matter how many hops. I don't think it really mattered. Huh. Um, and they said like, oh, you could, you could like apply and submit your license or whatever to, yeah, to get it. Of course. And I assume people in the developing world aren't able to go through that process. Possibly not. Possibly not. But yeah, so you 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 have that risk. Then Tether is like a shadow bank, basically. So you don't really have... They do blacklist sometimes, but even with Tornado Cash, they delayed their blacklisting. They made the government basically reach out to them and specifically ask to do it. So there was a delay uh, period there. Um, but yeah, because Tether is essentially a shadow bank, the U.S. government financial juggernaut is, you know, regulatory juggernaut has had its crosshairs on Tether for years, and it's been impressive that they've survived this long. Yeah. Um, but those crosshairs remain. But I mean, those crosshairs are important because I don't think somebody should be arrested for writing code. But if you've written code, which the North Korean government is using to mix the coins and use them, you're in the crosshairs. You're taking a risk. I don't think they should be arrested, but would I do that? Wait, rephrase that? So what I'm saying is uh, I don't think a developer should be arrested for writing code. Right. I don't think you should. I think that is a constitutionally protected thing in the US. I feel like it should be. Yeah. But at the same time, if you've created something which is heavily used by the North Korean government, you're putting yourself at a lot of risk. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the specific stats of Tornado Cash, but my understanding is it's you know the volume that was indicated that was North Koreans was rather minimal over the total volume. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I I just but, think it's it's another th- like, but I think that's tangential anyway. The point here is, twenty twenty two to me was there was a lot of pain for a lot of people. Um, but as a result, what we saw was basically learning experience after learning experience uh, because people were getting burned, right? So with, with, uh, with the Canadian truckers, we saw the importance of censorship resistance, uh, the importance of privacy, financial privacy, digital privacy. With, with the Luna collapse, we saw the importance of a native bearer token that doesn't have a centralized third party, the, the inherent risks of stable coins. Like we hadn't, that is the largest stablecoin, so-called stablecoin, we've ever seen blow up. Um, it was quite large at the time. Yeah. All the other ones that have blown up in the past were relatively small. But that caused More it. will happen. More of that will happen until people realize that Bitcoin is the only long-term stablecoin. But the other thing from the Luna situation exposed 
all the problems across all the different funds that blew up and all the different uh, lending services because that started a chain reaction. Right. They all had the same counterparties. Well, yeah. So like 3AC were heavily exposed to Luna, as I understand. Is that correct, Danny? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And so they blew up. When they blew up, they couldn't pay back their debts to whoever, whether it's Genesis, Right, DCG. DCG was exposed to Three Arrows and exposed to Luna. FTX, there's some talk that FTX blew up Luna in the first place and Alameda blew up. Blew, that's what Three Arrows guys are, are claiming, and that wouldn't surprise me. Then, but that also hurt Alameda, who was also a counterparty of DCG. Then um, Celsius is in the mix there. there were, the thing is, is everyone was pretending that they were only lending Bitcoin to they were only lending money to to very respectable institutions institutions and counterparties but what was happening was those counterparties were then going and just being absolute degens they were doing the most reckless trading schemes and staking schemes and yield farming schemes and they were essentially laundering that risk away from the the big guys who were just pretending that they were only using, you know, responsible counterparties. And, but at the end of the day, it was like, you know, four or five major players that were all just borrowing against each other and lending to each other. And they just created this whole fucking mess. They created this whole mess that inevitably blew up. I think you missed a part Um, of it as well in that they said they were only lending to responsible institutions but they also were claiming that the, they were fully collateralized or over-collateralized loans. And we knew that wasn't true. Or some of the collateral was some shit fucking shit coin. Right. Like, Garbage collateral. Like, yeah, like FTT. Or people uh, were taking out massive loans collateralized by miners. But when the price dropped, the miner right. value the dropped. Whole, the whole mining industry was dominated by ASIC collateralized loans. Yeah. And the ASICs, you know, are... They lose value, you know, significantly in downturns when you need, right when you need to call them, and they're not easy to run necessarily, right? So you can't just immediately seize a bunch of ASICs and run them. So that was definitely a massive. Uh, and this is the leverage. first cycle where we've really seen that kind of leverage. But if you start to wonder, like, essentially what happened here is so much leverage was in the system, and there was so much Bitcoin rehypothecation where the same Bitcoin was being lent over and over again that you have this result of just like immense paper Bitcoin markets. And part of the reason why this past bull market was as soft as it was and it peaked where it, where it peaked is probably because a lot of that demand was absorbed by essentially these paper Bitcoin markets. And it's something that people have speculated on for a while that people expected to happen. And the thesis has always been that those people get blown up, self-custody Bitcoin, increases. We're at an all-time high self-custody Bitcoin right now. We've never had more people hold actual Bitcoin and not IOUs anytime in human history. Um, and then we have a solid base where you start to find the real market price again, rather than the bullshit that was happening. But at the end of the day, like people are just greedy. People are always want more. Um, the surprise in it, though, for me, Matt, I think I was discussing with somebody yesterday, is that, yep, Someone like Barry is a good example, right? Barry Silver, whatever you think of him, he's made a lot of money, built some successful companies depending on your measure of success, but like in terms of revenue and, you know, he's built successful companies. And then he's t- 
for some unknown reason, as somebody who's, uh, uh, I've assumed or has been noted as a billionaire, perhaps multi-billionaire, has literally gone into this bull market and gone, I'm going to put it all on red. Or, yeah, essentially gambled. Because said, let's just take these massive risks. Let's do this. And I, I, I'm like wondering what the mentality is. Is it like, mm, two billion is not enough. I want 10 billion. But like, take, You didn't stay humble. But, but it takes such massive risks, not only to get wrecked, but like there's people who are risking serious jail time. Like I've taken, look, Matt, I've taken some risks in my life, right? Yeah. You know, financial risks, career risks. But I've not really taken risks where I've gone like, I've not been like, hey, Danny, like if we do this with the podcast, we can 10x our money. We get it wrong, we might end up in jail. Like we haven't taken those kind of stupid risks. And I don't understand why you would risk, when you're already a billionaire, do something where you risk ret- reputation death, financial, financially wrecked, and jail. Like what the fuck's going on in your mind? When are we airing this episode? Uh, the 11th. The 11th? What is today? The, the 7th. 7th. So four days. When this airs, it'll be 56 days from when Barry Silbert stopped withdrawals at Genesis. And he still has not paid Gemini users $900 million. Gemini earned users $900 million and owes over a billion dollars in addition to that to other counterparties that we know of. Um, is that a daily tweet now? More or less. Yeah. <laughs> Because no one else is really talking about it, so I keep keep calling it out. And also because Barry should know better and Barry should do the responsible thing and clean up the mess he had instead of stalling for time and trying to fuck over as many people as possible to save his own ass. What do you think his, um, what do you think his strategy is here? Stall, 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 stall. The thing is, the question to you, the question you brought up is why would he be so risky now, this bull market? Why would he play all these leveraged, ridiculously reckless games? I mean, I think it came out that they did they did a loan where they were paid in in that Terra stablecoin um, because they were going to like market make on the Terra stablecoin or some shit like that. And they took I, I think it was like over a billion dollars that they took in that in that horrible stablecoin that ended up collapsing. But Genesis were respected and had. But like- my point is, the where I was going with this is, I think. He was always taking ridiculous leveraged bets and risks, but they increased over time. He got more and more greedy. They increased over time. They increased in scale. He started doing this GBTC trade where it was essentially increasing the assets under management for GBTC, which was this cash cow that he had, that he was collecting 2% management fees on the entire assets under management. And he was basically facilitating loans so that people could try and arbitrage the spread between, because at that time, GBTC was trading significantly higher than Bitcoin. Now it's trading significantly lower. And he got very greedy on that, on that play, including holding a lot of GBTC themselves, um, both as collateral for loans and on their balance sheet. So they became very dominant on that one trade as well which increased risk furthermore and is very similar to the Luna collapse and the FTT collapse where they have their own essentially centralized shitcoin that's spiraling down in value and they can't get out of it. But the point I was trying to make is he's probably been taking these risks all this time. We saw him attack Bitcoin with Segwit 2x back in 2017 and failed where he thought there could be a proper corporate takeover of Bitcoin because he, he had his money was circulating through the space like crazy. He had investments in so many Bitcoin companies, including buying out Coindesk and basically using it um, 
as, as his own kind of mouthpiece at the time. Um, and so he was taking increasingly risking bets, but he never banked on the fact that cheap, easy external capital would evaporate, that the Fed would start raising rates and that he wouldn't be able to borrow himself out of a hole or that he wouldn't be able to at least raise equity out of a hole, right? And we saw that because he was still in denial. Remember when the first story started coming out, DCG is trying to raise a billion dollars yeah, and probably yeah. the worst macro climate to raise any kind of money at the time. And you just saw it and you're like, that is straight desperation. And also they're completely out of their fucking mind. They just don't even realize the severity of the situation they're in. And they ultimately couldn't raise that money. And I bet you to the, at this point right now, he still probably thinks, oh, I can borrow money out of this hole. Oh, I can raise money out of this hole. Maybe Bitcoin will turn around if I stall long enough. Maybe the Fed will pivot if I stall long enough. And it's that mentality of cheap money. Like he never, DCG was, was, it was like a movie set. You know, it's like the cheap money allowed it to have this veneer of legitimacy and this massive juggernaut. But behind the whole scenes was just a house of cards holding the whole thing up. And you believe he can clean it up? I think so. SBF can go fuck himself. He was essentially running a massive Ponzi scheme and scammed a ton of investors, a ton of users, a ton of people, just a huge amount of people. But one thing that happened with SBF and FTX is that he declared bankruptcy right away, right? He said, I fucked up. We fucked up, whatever, declared bankruptcy right away. I'm pretty sure he said he regretted declaring bankruptcy. He did. He did. Because every good scammer knows that you extend it for as long as possible and you try and wiggle your way out of it as much as possible, Right. And that is what Barry's doing right now. If Barry 55 days ago, trying to think of what day we're on right now when we're airing. If Barry 55 days ago was like, we fucked up. And he even in his press releases, he's like ordinary market behavior. Like ordinary market behavior isn't commingling DCG and your subsidiaries with interconnected loans, right? That's, that's just straight up reckless behavior. If he had took responsibility for Actually, it at that time. I think it's potentially more than just reckless behavior. Yeah, it could be just straight up fraud. Yeah. And they're being investigated right now for it. Instead of taking responsibility for it there, right, and being like, we're insolvent and, you know, let's figure it out to the best of our abilities. He's trying to extend it longer and longer, and it'll be more painful for everyone involved as a result, I think. It's very rare, that FTX situation where, you know, billions of dollars were withdrawn and then he just, like, declared bankruptcy, like... That's very rare. Usually what you see is just this long extended um, period where denial, 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 try and wriggle yourself out. So we think they own they owe 1.9 billion. I think it might be more than that, right? Don't know. Dan, you want to look it up? I think it's like two something. Okay. Say, even say it's two and a half billion. Sure. And DCG, what we don't know with Genesis, like do what assets they do have still uh they still have a trading business that they're carrying on i think it's about two billion about two billion yeah. they still got the trading business they i mean think they put out a press release recently saying genesis trading is operational right, it's on. still yeah my understanding is completely operational so right that's now. a that's an asset that could be sold at genesis yeah that's an asset that could be sold so someone could buy that trading business genesis uh, my assumption is genesis has something like they have some assets. Well, so DCG, the parent company, yeah, I believe owes Genesis one point six billion. 
Right. So when we're talking about who Genesis owes, it's really DCG that owes them. Okay. Right. And it's important to realize that the most profitable subsidiary of DCG is Grayscale. And Grayscale is the provider of the GBTC exchange traded product and all the different shitcoin ones he has, right? Yeah. He has like Ethereum, ETH Classic. And there's a bunch of them. So they could all be um, sold as well. Those are the golden goose. It's like only thing of value, really, that DCG has. And so everything he's doing to try and extend it is to basically still be able to, you know, have those management fees that are coming out of uh, coming out of GBTC and, and the other trust, but it's mostly GBTC. Do we know the size of those um, management fees? Like you say it's 2%. It, but the crazy thing is it's 2% of the total assets under management. Do we know what the toast, the, do you know what the NAV is? Um, the... Yeah, so he's collecting 2% on all of that. So he doesn't want it to get wound up, right? Or ten, sold. 10.5 billion. So 2% of that's 200, that's basically 200 million. A year. A year. So like someone would buy that. I think it's even, if you add the other trust, I, I think someone said like 500. Yeah, that's GBTC alone, so. Yeah. Yeah, but Bitcoin's got to be the majority of that. I, I believe so, one yeah. will be quite big as well, though, I imagine. They'll make a lot of money. I mean, so that. whatever, like it might be something that's worth a billion, might be something that's worth one and a half billion. Someone might want to buy that. Okay, you can go, okay, you can take that. You can return the loan to Genesis. You can sell Genesis He also trading. has a bunch of GBTC that he could sell. There may be enough assets in the total thing to get close to clearing the Genesis debts which means people get their assets back. Sadly, he loses his entire company stack. So, right, but he doesn't, you know, he's not, he's not trying to make sure that happens. But, but what we're saying is like, there's all these that little... He's doing, that's the point. There's all these little people over here and a few big people who are waiting for their money back. He might have the assets to do that, but he's choosing not to do that. So to protect himself, he's essentially fucking all these people here. Correct. Yeah. That's the fucked up part. And that's why I tweet about it all the time. Yeah. Um, and he should have known better. Of course. I wonder what pressure will come on him. I mean, we've just seen the New York AG. Well, supposedly they're trying to get like SBF to flip on him too. Okay. That's what I heard. I mean... Uh, and Caroline and Gary Wang. Yeah. Um, the FTX trio. I mean, look, it's not fair on all these people. That's, that's what we know. Like there's a bunch of people... I know because I've obviously received emails from people right. you know, telling me the situation they're in and yada yada. I'm sure you've had it as well. Uh, and that'll be people that might be their entire or a large part of their Bitcoin network. Their GBTC, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the pressure might come, come on him because we see Mashinsky's now being, uh, being sued by the New York AG. So as the operator of... Grayscale GBTC, um, they could redeem the GBTC at full value. Now, the normal process for them doing that would be um, to sell it all for dollars and then distribute the dollars. Now, if they did that, you would imagine there's going to be some kind of price drop and haircut on that. So like as soon as that announcement comes out, before they even sell, Bitcoin price will tank. I mean, so they will take a haircut on that. Absorbing 10 billion? Like what? It's like 600,000 Bitcoin, right? Or something like that. Um, I mean, is there is there enough liquidity in the market? To oh, there's 100% that? enough liquidity, but we'll just... And presumably they'd do it over like a matter of months rather than... But it'd be the news would price it in, right? Uh, or the news would knock the price down. Um, and so they would take a haircut in that situation. Now, there is something called a Reg M redemption, 
where they would apply to the SEC and say, for the sake of our shareholders, let them withdraw in kind, and then everyone would receive equivalent amount of Bitcoin. Which would uh, make the GBTC trade quite good right now. Because you would go from like whatever, it's like negative 90%. No, it's negative 47%. Because a lot of them are probably betting on that, right? Negative 47%. And then you, so you'd get double, yeah. right? Um, wow, it should be lower than that. That's crazy. Um, but but Barry would lose his golden goose, so he he hasn't done that. Like he could right in the beginning, he could he could have he could have filed this a year ago when the discount once it flipped, right? Because it went from premium, and he was basically pushing everyone into this crowded trade of arbitraging the premium, and then it just flipped negative and never recovered. It just kept going down, 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 lower, lower. But he just loves that two percent. So it was a ninety percent premium at one time. That's crazy. So mm-hmm. some people. It's not just minus 47 for them because they probably bought at the premium, the higher premium, and it flipped on them. Is that six-month delay, what, what, what is that about? Why does that exist? It has something to do with, you know, I don't know, financial regulations. I think it's SEC what, rules. It's like what is class, it's not an ETF, right? It's, uh, it's like a holding company or something like that. So there's no, there's no mechanism for the, for the opposite side. Um, you can only buy more shares. You can deposit Bitcoin to buy more sh- to create more shares. Yeah. Um, well, we just have to wait and see. I so mean, that's why, like, a lot of people say, like, "Oh, it's the SEC's fault for like not having an ETF." Yeah. But I would say this is squarely on on Barry and his team. Like they they should have known there wasn't going to be an ETF. What? This is the reason we don't have an ETF because of all the fuckers. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, we just have to wait and see what he does or what he's forced to do. Yeah. Um, we've missed a step. We haven't talked about BlockFi. We should. Yes. Because they were one of my sponsors. Um, also blew up. Yeah. They blew up in the Luna collapse. Um, uh, no, they blew up in the FTX collapse. Well, they first blew up in the Luna collapse and then FTX came in to quote unquote save them. Yeah. But at that time they had multiple offers on the table. That, like That's one of the sad things about their one is that they had multiple offers on the table and they took the FTX one. Which turned, but they were already not solvent at that point. They needed to be rescued. Yeah, I mean, which they, is why they took like a ridiculous deal from FTX too, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, they had. But what I'm saying is, they had multiple deals on the table. It turns out, in hindsight, they just took the worst one. Because I think if they'd have taken, say, the Morgan Creek deal, they'd probably still be operational now. I don't. I don't there's, there's, you know, there's got to be. Uh, there's got to be a level of responsibility taken here. Uh, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a cop-out to blame it on FTX. Um, they made reckless bets in the first place with customer money. Uh, BlockFi was, was often marketed in a way that was, was, I think, predatory in terms of convincing people to deposit their Bitcoin and their other coins into BlockFi when... That money was then just immediately getting lent out to essentially degen traders doing the most reckless trading strategies possible. Um, and BlockFi often claimed that they were only using, you know, responsible counterparties that were taking realistic risks. Um, and I think a lot of it is a product of, of what we were talking about earlier, which is this idea of growth at all costs, cheap money. We can always raise again. We can always borrow money. We don't need to have a profitable business. They were losing money. They never made money. Um, 
and we don't need to have a profitable business and we can just keep raising and we'll figure out the profit later um, and just keep hoovering up more and more people's Bitcoin. And uh, that was, I mean, that caught a lot of, a lot of people got, a lot of people got absolutely wrecked on that. Um, and, but this, so just to show, oh, like this, you know, I, I hear often like, oh, this couldn't have been avoided. Like it was out of BlockFi's control. Like no one would have known this massive Luna collapse would happen. No one would know that Celsius would go down and three arrows would go down. All these counterparties would go down. But meanwhile, while BlockFi was raising record valuation after record valuation, more and more money, um, you had Unchained Capital sitting there refusing to do customer yield products, only doing... Uh, Bitcoin collateral back loans, which was one subset of BlockFi's business, not their more popular part of their business. Not rehypothecating those loans. All those loans were over collateralized in multi-sig, completely clear on chain that it wasn't being lent out. Um, highly liquid collateral that can be sold if Bitcoin started to fall um, and did everything in the most responsible Bitcoin focused way possible. And keep in mind that if being a Bitcoin only company isn't just ideological. Like they built their whole business on native Bitcoin multi-sig properties. If you're trying to do um, tether back loans and USDC back loans and yield products and all this stuff, it's it's hard for you to also manage a native Bitcoin multi-sig product. But they stuck to their they stuck to basic fundamentals, long-term good risk management, and their valuations were tiny in comparison to BlockFi. And all the investors were telling them. Obviously, 1031 was not, but a lot of their investors were telling them, add shitcoins, add the yield product. Everyone has the yield product. Customers love it. You know, throw a credit card on top of it. Give them back rewards. Give them all this stuff. And they said, no, 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 no. Meanwhile, BlockFi lost their users' money. They are now uh, bankrupt. And Unchained is there. And they never, they, they never had any of those issues, right? Unchained operated on over 100% reserves, all provable on-chain and independent multi-sigs held by each, um, each user. And they did not have that issue, but the market didn't properly value that at the time. And they were giving, you know, BlockFi 10x multiples, if not higher, um, than, they were giving, than they were giving Unchained. I think it also goes back to that kind of conversation we're having regarding CoinCon and the speed at which you grow. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I think... Um, you know, whatever you think of BlockFi, those first couple of years, it was small growth. It was 16 people in an office. It was then 30 people. Um, and they were growing you know, growing fast. They got a lot of new customers. Uh, I, I don't have an issue with credit card products. I think they're useful. I mean, I need one. I use one. I don't know if you do. I think when they got to their last round, the valuation was so high. It's like, how do you justify that? Because I think the next step after that is probably IPO, right? Like, how do you get to that next stage? the market isn't big enough, so you've got to make those loans. And that's when they were making the loans that weren't, as they said, it wasn't perhaps institutions or responsible institutions. And it wasn't uh, over-collateralized loans. It wasn't the things that people perhaps believed it was. Here's the thing. is, And bear in mind, like, you know, they're a sponsor of mine. I worked with them for four years. I had no idea this was going on. Like, there was no evidence of this. Yeah, but... There was a lot of us that saw the writing on the wall very early on, on the BlockFi's risk management scheme and how they built their business and rightfully sounded alarms way, way, way before this stuff happened. 
I think there's a couple of things here to unpack. First of all, I think there is a responsibility for people that have corporate sponsors to hold those sponsors as critical as possibly, more critical than other companies, and to ultimately put their audience first and their users first, right? Mm. I think that is ultimately at the core. I think a lot of people have, have learned that this cycle, unfortunately, the hard way. Um, but I think there is a responsibility there. And I take that responsibility very seriously. Um, the, the, sec- the second part is incentives, 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 right? And we talk about incentives a lot in Bitcoin. Broken incentives are at the core of almost everything that's wrong with our society, all different elements of broken incentives. And this yield concept, this idea of quote unquote yield, of earning interest on your Bitcoin or your, your shit coins, or um, the opposite of loaning against your Bitcoin has this perverse incentive where if you are searching for interest to receive, you want the highest rate possible. And as a result, the services that offer, that trade with, you know, lend money out to the most risky counterparties get the highest interest rates, right? Because the more risky your loan, the higher interest rate that that demands, and you're able to pass that on to your user, cut a portion for your margin for yourself, right? So you you're naturally inclined to seek the most risky loans. And then on the opposite side, when it comes to Bitcoin collateralized loans, the user wants the lowest possible interest rate, right? And you're able to offer the lowest possible interest rate if you take their money and then go lend it out to the riskiest fucking people. So as a result, uh, you know, you saw on Unchained, people would go and they'd be like, why would I borrow money from Unchained? when their interest rate is significantly higher than a BlockFi or a Celsius or an XO. And it was because they're, you know, they're not lending out your Bitcoin. Your Bitcoin's just sitting there in a, in a multi-sig uh, and not being rehypothecated and lent it out. So obviously you're going to have to pay a higher, higher interest rate than the companies that are doing the opposite. So we saw two broken incentives there that when taken to their extreme results in catastrophic failure and all this, all this money all, all these users losing money. I do take my uh, position responsibly. I appreciate you bringing up BlockFi. Well, no, listen, look, I'm not going to hide it from it. Um, as somebody who had them previously as a sponsor, it, it's not an easy thing to go through knowing that you've advertised the product, you've sold a sponsorship, you know people have used it because they've listened to your uh, advert and currently they have no access to their Bitcoin or part of their Bitcoin. I have to read the emails that come in where people explain their current situation. Um, you know, BlockFi was one of the first sponsors of Rabbit Hole Recap. I did not know that. And in 2019, when they added the Yield product, we cut them as a sponsor. We could have made a lot more money if we kept them, but we cut them as a sponsor. Yeah, look, uh, I wouldn't have a sponsor on the show if I thought I didn't believe uh, the product would be successful, the business could be successful. I wouldn't do that. We, tur- we do turn down sponsors despite what people believe, we turned out a lot of sponsors. I had a quite close and direct relationship with the people who run the company. I could phone them up and say, listen, I've heard this, or come on the show, explain it, people are concerned. I also spoke to the people investing money into them, people who you know, invested tens of millions, like, tell me about this. Like, there's lots of information from a lot of different directions. You get information coming from hardened Bitcoiners, like, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing this. 
you get uh, other information from people put in tens of millions and they say no it's fine it's this like it's hard um it's a hard thing to take but like we've reflected on this a lot yeah, we think about this a lot yep it's rough to see people lose their bitcoin would you take some personal responsibility for that i mean i'm part, if i'm part responsible if somebody listens to my ad but i don't run the company day to day i'm not there running the company uh, you get advice from all yeah, the i don't look i don't expect perfection in assessing risks i know i'm not perfect right what bothers me is when people just don't take responsibility for 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 missing it for for feel you know publicly apologize those kind of things um and i'm not like i didn't like come on your show to like do a witch hunt or whatever i can be self-reflective as well we had compass as a sponsor for three months for rabbit hole recap compass mining um they 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 told a great vision. I had some alarm bells that were ringing when we started to do it, but I was like, this vision makes sense. It's no KYC. It's Bitcoin only, right? Um, and we started to see issues that were happening. And I, I straight up told people we fucked up. And that is one of the biggest regrets that I've ever had in my life was taking on Compass as a sponsor, even though it was only for those three months in time. And what pisses me off the most about the the dcg situation and is is barry saying oh well no one could have seen it coming it wasn't my fault what pisses me off the most about the ftx situation is sbf is like oh like if i hadn't declared bankruptcy like you'd all have been paid out by now like it wasn't my fault like it was unexpected right like i couldn't have seen it coming what pisses me off the most about the BlockFi situation is that is that that zach who i've known for a long time refused to take any responsibility. It was FTX's fault. We should have never made the FTX. You were already insolvent from your bad decisions that you had made and had never made a profit up until that point and had shotgun KYC users and done all this other stuff when you took the FTX money to begin with in a desperate move to save the company that you had built in the first place. And then when the whole thing collapses, like I, res I, I, I think it's fantastic that people are having children and stronger families are happening and we're, you know, seeing new Bitcoiners born in the world. But to have his paternity autoresponder on while his company is fucking bankrupt and withdrawals are frozen and people are getting are being told that if they don't pay their credit card bills of three hundred dollars, they're going to they're going to send them to a debt collector. And meanwhile, they can't even get the rewards on their credit card to withdraw because they're not there. They don't even fucking exist is just fucking insane. And like, you, this, this movement is supposed to be one of personal responsibility. And this idea that people just are like, oh, I couldn't have seen it coming, it wasn't my fault, is the most infuriating thing because you just witness it happen. If you're in the space for any period of time, you just witness it happen over and over and over again. This show is brought to you by Ledin. Now from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. 
With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Yeah, but I'm going to say I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Like I held Bitcoin in BlockFi up until the day I ended the sponsorship. Up until that day ended, I had Bitcoin in them. If I didn't, but I, you didn't have Bitcoin in when it collapsed. No, because I the sponsorship ended. Yeah. When when they had the difficulty with Luna, and you know they said, well, "Look, we've done the deal with FTX." Yeah, they moved on, and I gave Zach a call. Yeah, made a decision. It's like probably time to move on. He was okay with it. I was okay with it, and I moved out of it. Wasn't like a, I wasn't running away from them. I had no inside information. I thought the deal was good for them. I I had no idea. Do you agree you made a mistake having them as a sponsor? Do you regret a, having them as a sponsor? Ah, that's a different question. Do you regret having them as a sponsor? Yes, I regret. But but okay. So do you think you made a mistake having them as a sponsor? No, because I couldn't foresee it. They're two different things, and like I think it's really important to get this right. I re, why do you think I regret? I, the, the the only reason I have a regret is people I don't know, whether they listen to my podcast or not, but like I regret that people who listen to my podcast used a product and then lost their Bitcoin. That's why I regret it. But I don't, I, that's why I can regret it. But if I think I was making a mistake, I wouldn't do it. I don't, I don't look at something and go, that's a mistake, but I'm going to make but it you anyway. You could realize you made mistakes after the fact. But, but I didn't have that. You, you have the information afterwards, Right. So it's like a it's like a weird thing. It's hindsight. Okay, I made the mistake because I had yeah, I made the mistake because I didn't know I couldn't see something in the future. But I think you make a mistake if you have the information and you do it. Like I think if um if I knew that they were fucked, if Zach gives me a call and says, look, people were fucked, and I'm like, okay, well look, carrying a sponsorship, we'll try and get you some new customers. I've made a mistake there. Because I've known. I mean, you've committed fraud in that situation. Well, I know. Like, if he's like, look, the business is. In, no, I don't think that's fraud. I, like, he said, look, the business is in trouble. We're trying to turn it around. We're insolvent. Go do well, that. that's different. He's insolvent. But what I'm saying is, if you know the information, if you've got the information, or like you've got the doubts, 
I had zero doubts about the company, like zero doubts. So I, I, how can it be a mistake? Because I thought it was the right thing to do. So you had, you had after they were insolvent from Luna, you had zero no, doubts? No, 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 no. But, but that's at the point the sponsorship ended, right? Right. Yeah. I'm saying up until that point, I had, I had like the only things, I knew they had a bad GBTC trade and they had the SEC fine, which I disagree with, by the way. But like, well, I disagree with the SEC fine. Yeah, but I, I just don't think whatever securities laws, it doesn't matter. They're not really there to protect people. But if I had information that that I thought there was a risk, then it's a mistake. Uh, you know, it's like who, like what information do you trust? You got all this different information coming in. You know, uh, may you know, just accept some responsibility. I'm accepting. I've told you, I regret it. That's responsibility. Okay. Do, when you when you drop them, and I I don't know if I'm. I'm just trying to get to the core of this. When you dropped them, did you explain to your audience why you dropped them, that you had concerns about them, or did you just like quietly drop it? I just moved to another sponsor. Do you think you, do you wish in hindsight that you had, you know, an episode explaining concerns over BlockFi? Because you obviously had concerns at that point, right? Yeah, but look, like if you're going to ask me this, I've got to give you full information. I didn't just end the relationship because of concerns over them. It's not that. If I'd have had concerns over them, I would express them. I'd have said to Danny, when the uh, Luna situation happened, you know, they did the deal with FTX, you know, money was tight for them. And they'd come to me and they said, listen, like we've got a new deal. You know, we're fine, we're liquid. The money's going to be tight. What can we do in the sponsorship? And I just at the time said, well, why don't we just end the sponsorship? I'll move to somebody else. You don't need it. You've been with me for years. Like I thought it was a good deal for them. Interesting. Yeah, if it had been a situation where I was like, yeah, like we're fucked and I'd been concerned about them, then I would have, you know, felt some obligation to come out and tell people, but I had no concerns. Do you think that sponsors of the podcast have a rosier image of them in the content you produce by inherently being sponsors? Are there, are there, is there a lack of critical discussion on sponsors because on the podcast like in the internal content of the podcast uh we don't really it depends because we don't we're not that kind of show like you make the kind of show where you're looking right at sponsors and you're discussing their operations and we don't do that that often if you go back and look at the history of our shows most of the stuff we're talking about governance or macro like we very rarely talk about companies we do in a scenario like this end of year review this is the shit that's happened let's talk about it something blows up let's talk about it right but i don't generally we don't really make shows like that well the reason i bring it up is just because i feel like that's where the responsibility stems from right it's not just that they're an advertiser right it's this idea that um the critical discussion that people expect to hear of these different companies doesn't happen because of a financial relationship in the first place. Yeah, and no, that's where that. the responsibility lies. The, I mean, and we saw it with Compass. Like Compass literally, there was employees from Compass. There was internal discussions as well, but there was employees from Compass that actively were talking publicly about how nobody should sponsor Rabbit Hole Recap because this is not how you should treat um, this is not how you should treat sponsors. And my answer to them was very clear. You know, you don't buy my fucking opinion. 
you're a sponsor of the show. You support the show and the production of the show. But at the end of the day, like if I'm, if we're talking critical of you, we're talking critical of you because you're fucking up your product and you're fucking over your users. Why don't you clean up your act? And then that won't happen. Right. Yeah. Take some responsibility for that. And it's very common in this space and we see it. And I'm not trying to single out you. Um, there are many, many content creators in this space, event planners in the space that give rosier coverage to sponsors. And then when the sponsor rugs all of their audience, they say, no one could have seen it coming. It wasn't my responsibility. But meanwhile, there's plenty of us that didn't do that, right? That realized that risk was not <laughs> not worth that risk to our user, to our audience, right? And there's plenty of us that did that. Um, so obviously there was another option. Yeah, but like what I'm saying is you've said, do I regret it? Yes, of course I regret it. I've admitted that. You, you've asked me, have I made a mistake with the information I had? I mean, you obviously made a mistake having BlockFi as a sponsor because you, there was a ton of audience members that, and audience, a ton of your audience listened to it and then ended up in BlockFi. Yeah, I mean, so, so now you get into this, like, now you get into the situation where it's like uh, anyone who's selling advertising is responsible for every advertiser that advertises with them. And that's just like a tricky position to be in because we don't have access to all the information. I think in a specific industry that is as small as Bitcoin, uh, it gets more, like I think it's at the core of the advertising. And we've had debates on your show about yeah. advertising model versus value for value. Um, but I think, yeah, that is one of the core darknesses of the advertising model. But in Bitcoin specifically, it gets way, way, way more insidious, it feels like. Um, because, like, if if Delta was your sponsor and, you know, there was a bunch of Delta plane crashes or something, I wouldn't, you know, consider you as responsible for that. I don't think it's a good analogy. No, no, but I would... I'll give you a better one. Um, Tesla, say there's concerns about Tesla's autopilot and Tesla are a sponsor of mine. And then two Teslas, like the autopilot fails and the cars crash. Am I responsible? Okay. And my point there is, is this is a show about Bitcoin where people are educating themselves on Bitcoin. So when you interact with Bitcoin companies and adjacent, right? When you interact with those companies, there is a stronger level of responsibility that happens in the due diligence process, in what discussions happen on your show, um, in the kind of, you know, sphere of Bitcoin knowledge, right? Like that is, the, I mean, obviously what Bitcoin did is, is expanding more, not just Bitcoin. Um, there's tangential topics that are being discussed as well, but at the core, it's a Bitcoin show learning about Bitcoin and you have Bitcoin sponsors. And as a result, there needs to be, I think, a higher level of due diligence and a higher level of responsibility with those kind of companies. But we... Do, how do you know what level of due diligence we have? Well, I mean... I mean, but you, like the only way the due diligence would have found that out is to give me access to information they would never have given me because they were doing things that were sketchy. So, like, how do I get that level of due diligence? And so, like, look, I get it. I get what you're saying. And don't think it doesn't weigh heavily on me. It does. Like, every one of those emails that comes in, it fucking weighs heavily on me. It really does. Like... It's shit to read, right? 
And I do struggle with it. I wrestle with it. I mean, Dan, you talk to Danny, talk afterwards. Like we've talked about this a lot. It's it's a hard thing to deal with, especially like you know when someone like you or John Carvalho said to me a long time and said like block fire sketchy, like you need to be careful here or you shouldn't be having them. You know, we go away and we think about that, and then I take advice from other places. Like no, the company's in a great position. The company's got this many customers. They go around. I don't know, but I don't ever ever make a decision where I think, ah, do you know what? Fuck the listener. I'll take a gamble here. It's okay. We're getting paid. I never do that. I never would. Okay. I mean, I think we're talking in circles a little bit, but... Yeah, a little bit. But like, you know... I said my piece. We take this forward. You know, we consider the future of what we're doing and we're like, okay, maybe we need to have less reliance on sponsors. Like maybe the model needs to be different. Maybe it does need to be value for value or subscriptions. Maybe we need to get away from having that reliance on sponsorship. Like that is weighing on us. It might be like, do you know what, Danny? The next two years are going to be tight because we need to change the model of what we're doing because there is too much risk here. You know, that that weighs on us. Yeah, because you have that option available to you. It's obviously not a financially prudent option it's a more difficult path to take yeah and it's like you know but we have to consider that like the sponsorship option because you have a responsibility yeah we have a responsibility and like our listeners have got burned on i can think of two three sponsors yep that they've got which ones drop bit was the first one yeah um yeah who was to know in the background the guy running that company historically made all his Bitcoin running a mixer? But it was a custodial Lightning wallet. Yeah, but like there were others. Blue Wallet's a custodial Lightning wallet. But the only, the only that. people that got rugged were the people that were using the custodial Lightning wallet. The on-chain self-custody didn't get rugged. Yeah, but like like there are other custodial wallets that people are using. Right. Like I, I use mean, Blue and I think Blue's great. Do not use Blue. It's a custodial wallet. You're going to get rugged. Yeah, but I'm saying I use it for me the well, I've got hardly think I spent some money from my blue wallet at Thiggy today at Bitcoin Park. There you go. Yeah, uh, that's the first one. Uh, BlockFi we've talked about, and that weighs on me a lot. And keep in mind to the listeners, blue wallet's only custodial on the Lightning side, not the on-chain. Yeah. Okay. Uh, BlockFi. And, Drop uh, it. Uh, and Compass. Compass was a different Compass. one. Compass. Yeah. And then Gemini. I mean, we, we have never promoted the own product, never been involved in it, you know, we promote the exchange. Right. Um, but that was the insidious part about Gemini Earn was like people were getting like emails and stuff saying like, oh, like you're keeping money with Gemini. Like, why don't you get another 7% or... I mean, look, look that's yeah. their, that's, yeah, that's whatever their marketing is. But like, again, Compass was another tricky one because, you know, at first I thought it was great, but we also have contracts. Like you might not have these. Uh, it might be a situation that's not what you do but like every one of our sponsors we have contracts yeah we have contracts okay and the contracts have certain things about terms and things and you know reasons to end a contract and whatever and you know uh, on the compass one um that one got about tricky about six months in right i don't know when you started your sponsorship yeah. i mean they haven't sponsored us for a while now yeah it would have been something like that it was like when a year and a half ago when we had yeah. it on the show in the uk yeah you know, again, like when they got into the difficult position they were in, we spoke to the people who run them or invested in them. Like, what's going on here? Like, is this turning around? Can you fix this? And again, that was inside information we didn't know about. But like, 
you know, we could go around and around with these sponsors. Like, I think anyone listening is going to know there has, like, some of my sponsors have had some situations. And there's going to be people listening going, go on, Matt, well done, call Pete out. And they're going to enjoy this, right? Right. They're going to enjoy that you're putting pressure on me and they're going to enjoy, they can say, look, Pete Squirman or whatever. I know people are going to enjoy this and I could have easily not made this show or I could have veered the conversation elsewhere. But like, we are like listening. You know, this is an experience we've gone through as well. It isn't fun. It sucks. And it's like, okay, you know, when, I mean, we've seen Pomp. Pomp's announced he's going away from sponsors. Because all the sponsors went bankrupt. Maybe, maybe he can still get more sponsors. Yeah. Um, you know, we still, we still believe we make a really good show that's been really good for Bitcoin. We work super hard for it. You know, we spend time away from our families. We come out, we work hard. And, you know, none of us do this with any intent. Look, there's no intention of us or carelessness of us to think, you know, fuck people. Like, well, if we, I thought that was the case, I wouldn't. Yeah, but like we, we do work really fucking hard on this, you know. And, and when we make money, we support projects. This week, we've sent money to Bitcoin Policy Institute and Tor. We've made donations to those guys helping their projects. We supported Peter Todd with his open time stance. We sponsored that. Yeah, there's loads of things that we do. We, we are conscientious Bitcoiners. We just maybe just, I don't know, maybe we just, uh, I don't want the best, I say we, and it's not really fair to say we, because it's I. I make these decisions. Yeah, I bounce them off that, but I make these decisions. So maybe, Maybe it's just taken me a bit longer to like realize some of this, which usually it does with most things anyway. It took me four years to learn the next part. Yeah, I mean, people can go back to the value for value episode we had together. Yeah, but that what episode that was. That model's never going to work in the short so term. So then how do you avoid, um, what's your plan going forward to not have audience members get rugged by your sponsors? Yeah, I mean, look, there's multiple angles to that. Like, you know, you've got to uh, look at the companies and what, uh, themselves. Like, we make this, this show is made as a remote show, right? Uh, sorry, sorry, an in-person show. Because we want to, we want the high quality. Like, right, it's way better in person. Yeah, it's way better in That's person. I have the podcast studio at Bitcoin Park. And, and the production quality is better. And we want people coming into Bitcoin to like, you know, find a show that, that, that maybe is, fits alongside nicely the, some of the other shows they work in terms of production. Right. Right. Um, and we also try and make a show that is apolitical as possible. It's hard not to show your biases, but like speaks to a broad spectrum of people and brings out all the different ideas. Like we want to do that. But it's an expensive thing to make. It costs $120,000 a month to make this show, right? If we can't make that without sponsors... Well, what are the options? We could do a subscription model. People could, you know, on Patreon. Can 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 the show uh, bring in 1.4 million a year through subscribers? Possibly, possibly. Or maybe it's a hybrid mix. That's possibly the mix. And if we can't make that work, well, we conserved capital from last year. If the runway's there, we see the runway and we think, okay, maybe it'll do that, then great, we'll carry on. And if it doesn't, it's like, okay, we tried. It failed. We'll be a remote show. We'll cut back and... That's the way it is. Well, I mean, I think there's a middle ground that is convenient to ignore, which is be more selective with who you choose. And as a result, you take a hit on the revenue side. But then I, you know... Like, that's under the assumptions of what I've said. It's like, if we can't rely on sponsors, like, the show brought in enough on sponsors to cover that, right? 
what we're saying is if now can't do that, if, if one, the sponsors aren't there because it's a tight market, or two, we have to be even more selective about who we work with, or we just want to get away from sponsors eventually, we have to find a new model. I don't think value for value is going to provide that f for what we do for years. So the only other options is, oh, you go into other things. You do events and stuff, but we're not, we're not events. We make podcasts. So I think, you know, it's an active conversation. We will try some things over the, this year and see what happens. See where we get with it. Okay, but there, there, is, a, <laughs> there, there is a middle ground um, I agree that value for value is early. Obviously, I built Citadel Dispatch as a purely value for value show with no sponsors or ads, no even no paywalls, no subscriptions. The content's available freely. Pay what you um, pay. Pay what value you think it provides to you. Right? Um, Dispatch is obvious. Is not obviously is is one of uh, the most popular podcasting 2.0 apps. Uh, podcasting 2.0 uh, shows. Um, and still, I've, I've noticed that the support is increasing, that we see across the board the amount of shows that are getting supported and the level they're getting supported. I've seen your show up on the charts sometimes, has been increasing. Um, but it is a fraction of the revenue that comes in on a rabbit hole recap that's in, it's a hybrid model. It's ad supported plus value for value where people can contribute. Um, like a incredible fraction uh, of of the rabbit hole recap revenue. But at the same time, rabbit hole recap has been going on for four and a half years. Um, and besides the three months of compass, uh, we have been able to avoid situations with outright, you know, audience harm. Um, and throughout that whole process, we were also critical of our sponsors and we held them to a higher standard than other companies. And, um, yeah, and and we were very transparent when we dropped when we dropped Compass in the lead up to dropping Compass. We were very transparent about why we were doing it, the risks to do it, and very outspoken about people trying to get out of that kind of situation as best as they possibly could. And I and that's the core of this whole discussion, which is if you are going to run an ad model, and I see this also not just with Rabbit Hole Recap, we see this building out Bitcoin Park. Bitcoin Park has incredible burn. You saw it. It's very expensive to maintain that thing, right? And part of our strategy is, yes, member-supported initiative. But the memberships only get us so far, in, especially in the beginning, we need solid company supporters, Bitcoin company supporters and adjacent stuff like real estate brokerage or something, right? That mm. wants, um, Or like there's a mining insurance company for the mining summit. But the point is, is that we are leaving a lot of so-called money on the table by making sure that the supporters we do choose are supporters that we feel 100% certain in, right? Like we, you have to make a very, and I, I don't think I'm like telling you, like this is not you learning this for the first time. I think you're aware of this. No, but right? It's an active conversation we're having right, now. Which yeah. is where the responsibility comes in. Yeah. With who your partners are and why you have to hold them but to I'm not a higher I'm standard. Not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm telling you like, we're there. Okay. We're there, Matt. Like, okay. This isn't like uh, a thing where we've just gone through and said, oh, you know, whatever, like, what are we going to get next? Who are we going to replace it with? We're like, okay, how do we get away from the inherent risks that come with sponsors? Like, I think there are good sponsors out there. There are companies I would work with or want to work with. But like, you know, 
if me and Danny said, look, if it has to go back to being a remote show, we stop all the travel, then fine. But I don't. Li- I live in Bedford, United Kingdom. I don't live in Nashville. I don't live in Austin. I don't have 20 Bitcoiners that are great to interview live near me who come in all the time. There's like, I live in Bedford, England. Barely people come to London. So, so if we have to do it, it would be a remote show. Me and my lounge or my kitchen recording back like it used to be during COVID and then we rebuild it like that I, I accept that I would like it to stay as an in-person show I think the quality of what we produce is important yeah. good and so we're trying to figure out that model like we've gone through that burning exercise like how do we and I think it is a hybrid but we are working on that yeah I mean we're talking in circles I think uh I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's good that you, you feel there's a responsibility to make sure you pick solid partners. I've always felt that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's not, not again, like, I, I'll take the zingers on the chin. Like, I'll take the negatives. I've also, you know, I think it's also to, like, weigh in other things that people don't recognize or bring in. I think... <laughs> I think the whole thing sometimes, you know. Look, I, uh, I, I completely. Uh, I'm not just like some piece of shit who just takes people's money and goes, "Oh, great, give me your money." Like, ah, fuck that sponsor, fuck my listeners. Like, I take this role in Bitcoin responsibly, and I've had to take a well, lot if of. If I thought that hold was on, the case, no, I wouldn't on. keep coming on your show. I know, but like, right? I've had to like take a lot of personal stress. I ended up in hospital during my uh, right, lawsuit. I that. Yeah, I ended up in hospital. Like, I've taken abuse and shit for years like relentless shit i've taken people trying to cancel me i've taken false accusations like i take as much abuse i probably take more abuse than most people in bitcoin right but you've self-admitted that some of that abuse like you like fanning the flames that's that's an old thing that i said like four years ago like people bring that i don't fan the flames now i any, any opinion i give out is an honest opinion and I think a lot of people like the fact that I don't sit in this tight little box like of the, like Bitcoin opinions. Like I am given a like we've created a movement for progressive Bitcoiners this year. We've done that. Right. We've introduced all these people. And by the way, that's the most important thing for conservative Bitcoiners because they have that defense that it doesn't become partisan. And like we've done that. Like we're constantly working hard. But like people just want to go, oh, where are the dunks? Where are the dunks? I'm well aware of what happens when you're a public figure and people are very critical of everything you're doing out in the open. Happens to me as well, right? Very, makes a lot. People quickly forget the good things. They always look back at the bad things. That is not the point I'm trying to make. And I think it is irrelevant to this situation, which is there is a responsibility on who the partners are. Anyone who worked with those partners is partially responsible the ethical and moral thing to do for those for your audience is to admit fault to a degree in that situation. That's all I'm saying. Um, nobody's perfect. Admit the mistakes. Move forward better. That's the ideal situation. And there will always be haters no matter what, and people will always forget the good things. Um, well aware of that. See it firsthand every day. Um, it's just frustrating as someone who has been in this, been a public figure in this space for probably way too long, 
that's tried to do things the good way and you just see it just repeat over and over and over again and then just people just brush it under the rug. They just completely brush it under the rug. Well, we're not brushing on the rug here because we're talking about it and That's I good. could easily have avoided it. Yeah. We're not brushing on the I rug. I appreciate that. No, I want to have this conversation. Look, and if people are listening to comedy and thing and like giving shit, like fair, fair, you, you know, it's that kind of response that you learn for. Like we, re- again, we read the comments, you know, we listen to the feedback. Um, we listen to what listeners say. And that's that's always an important part to listen to what the listeners say as well. But like, I'm not I'm not therefore then going to just take on a sponsor because I think, ah, they're going to fuck people. Ah, they might, they might rug them. Like, I didn't see there was an issue. Okay. Okay. What month are we in? I think we <laughs> How long are we in, Daddy? Uh, two hours and 15 minutes. Have we really done that long? Jesus Christ. I don't think this was a year in review. No, I mean, we got, what, we got to like March or something? Well, we covered a lot of stuff. I don't think this was a year of review. I, I never thought it was going to be. I think this was going to be what we just discussed now. And that was what, I know you wanted to do it. I mean, I, we've had this, like, yeah, it's an important conversation. Yeah. Got to yeah. own your mistakes. All of us do. Yeah. 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 Well, listen. Look, from this, we will... Well, I mean, look, this is... I mean, people can go back to our past episodes. I've talked about it on my shows a lot, too. This is my optimistic take, just to brighten the mood here a little bit in this room, even though we have these massive lights. My optimistic take has always been almost like a doomer optimistic take, which is just... um, There's just going to be a lot of times where people are going to touch a stove, they're going to learn very expensive lessons, and then they improve from it. So we've, this year has uh, just been one massive carnage-fueled educational experience where a lot of people have learned lessons uh, that will stay with them for the rest of their life, that they realize the importance of self-custody Bitcoin, of holding your own keys, um, of not trusting these custodial services, of being careful who sponsors are, of realizing that there's you know, the people that in a bull market are, are look like the smartest people in the room are usually the biggest degens and taking the most risk. And that's why they look good in those situations. I mean, I remember um, not too long ago, people treated the three hours capital guys like they were gods, right? They treated Barry Sibber like he was a god. They treated SBF like he was a god. They treated all the investors that were valuing BlockFi at $4 billion as gods, right? Now they treat, treat you like a god. They're all fucking wrecked. That is not the point. I'm like... I have made many mistakes. Um, I have fucked up many times. Um, I'm very conscious of that. And it's important to be conscious of that because hypocrisy rules everything around us. And we're all a little bit of hypocrites and it's important to try and be the least amount of a hypocrite as possible. But the point is, is that there's all all these things happened. A lot of people got hurt. A lot of people lost money. A lot of people will continue to lose money as this DCG stuff unwinds. I mean, I promise you that the Winklevoss twins massively regret ever working with Genesis and launching that earned product. Of course. Um, and they realize that now, right? And unfortunately, a lot of people will you know, lose money on that. But hopefully, we'll have a whole new set of, of people that understand the fundamentals, that understand proper risk management, that stay humble over the next couple of cycles, that start to care about digital privacy, that start to care about 
you know, supporting open source tools and learning how to use them. Like this, this happens over time. And it unfortunately seems like it can only really happen as people lose. Because I have, I mean, there's tweets out there where, you know, I'm telling people to withdraw money from BlockFi a year ago, a year and a half ago. And people underneath are like, nope, that was like the Mount Gox area. Like Bitcoin has matured past that. Like that will never happen again. Like it's not going to happen. Like, Matt, you're so heartless. Like I need this 6% interest to f- feed my family. I swear there's, there's, a, there's tweets that say that. Um, and those people now realize what I was saying. Right. They realized the risk. They realized why they were getting paid a percentage in the first place was because they were taking an insane amount of risk to get paid that percentage. Um, maybe you're right. And we live and learn from that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're right in that. I can think of one mistake I made this year that I'm not proud of. Right. Uh, when the uh, Celsius files came out and there was somebody in there called John Carvalho. And uh, John had been giving me a hard time on some bullshit as well. But like, I saw this John Carvalho thing and I was like, <laughs> and I called it out. Uh, and that's a mistake, right? Because uh, I jumped to a conclusion and I attacked somebody and I had to go back. I had to go back and apologize, John. And do you know what, in fairness to him, he was fucking decent about it. He brought like, he like found the real John Carvalho. Yeah, I ended up rugged on Celsius. I know, I ended up sending him money as well because I felt so sorry for him. Um, and also because of the, just the guilt of John, I felt bad. I was like, right, well, like, I helped this guy out. Um, but I apologized to John. He could have been a total dick to me, and he wasn't. And then I saw him in Amsterdam, and he was cool, and he's kind of forgotten about it. Like, I'm sure he hasn't forgotten about it, but he was good about it. And that was a mistake. That was like a, a genuine, like, okay, I fucked up here. Because like you say, we all do. And then if you think in that context, like, what was the mistake? Well, m- maybe I hadn't done enough to realize, like, what I was about to do. Yeah, so, so like in that same context, maybe you're right. Maybe they are mistakes. Maybe you're right. I need to think about this one. I'll probably, it'll probably all come out my intro. Well, I appreciate it. No, I appreciate like, you coming around, Peter. No, look, like it, it takes a lot. The tough man, like owning, owning situations or owning mistakes or realize it's really hard. Can we just cut the tape right where he says you're right and just fade to black? <laughs> no, no, look, look, it's, look it's, it's hard. Like owning mistakes are hard. When you don't think you've done something wrong and then like something bad happens, when you think you're a conscientious person, something bad happens, like it's hard to come back from that and like figure it out. I'm just going to need some time to like work it through and think it through, but you're probably right. Yeah, Matt's right. Leave it with me. Let me have a think about that one. And uh, yeah, okay. All right. Matt O'Dell, thank you for our annual telling P off. <laughs> this is a very uh, productive conversation. Yeah, I think it was. It was a little bit solemn, but that's the kind of year it was. Yeah. I mean, look, sometimes you've had to accept that I'm right, that like a lot of this Bitcoin stuff's too hard, too difficult to use. And sometimes I have to accept you're right about. Did you name a bar in, at, at the stadium in Bedford? It's called the X-Pub. The X-Pub? Yeah. There you go. But you know X-Pubs now. You figured it out. Uh, I've known what X-Pubs are yeah. a lot longer than I've admitted. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to... Uh, exactly. Fan the flames. No, that's not fanning the flames. I'm not fan... No, I'm just like... I think, I think there's some people who... Uh, 
don't realize how far away they are in their depth of knowledge to other people and no, no, how I far they put that. them to do. And like, I've taken that on the chin a few times, but I, I, that's one area I stood by. Like, no, I'm, I appreciate I mean, that is something that I've been... Uh, I think that's a blind spot of yours. No, bullshit. Yeah. I'm innately conscious of that. Um, and a lot of the work that I do offline and online is focused on on an education point of view of trying to make education accessible to people. So I see the pain points firsthand. We see it at Bitcoin Park. We run workshops there. I've worked with activists, ranchers, NFL players, teaching them how to use Bitcoin, seeing all these different perspectives and, you know, uh, roadblocks where they, they get confused. And there's definitely a big disconnect between, um, like, I'll, I'll, well, like the Bitcoin diehard community, especially in the dev side and, and the actual average user using things. Like, I mean, we had, uh, I had Sergey from BitRefill on uh, Citadel Dispatch and we were talking about the average user of BitRefill versus, you know, the average Bitcoin Twitter person, right? Um, and there's a, ma- there's a massive disconnect there. People can go check the tapes. I mean, that was the, the XPub one specifically was our really drunk Zoom one that was a little bit brutal and you might not want to listen to it because time is scarce. Um, Br- brutal. But my concern there brutal was- Brutal why? My issue was, my issue was that I think as an educator, you have, so you have more responsibility to understand those things. And, and so, so like- Forget the COVID mask requirement on planes. I realize this metaphor like broke a little bit because of the COVID response. But when you're on a plane and those oxygen masks come off, come down from the plane, you're supposed to put yours on before you put the children's on, right? Yeah. And I think if you're doing an educational show, which I think what Bitcoin did is. I I um, disagree. I think ultimately people listen to it to expand their knowledge and understanding of things, which means it's an educational show. there is a greater burden on the host to, to try and understand and learn these things so that they can better serve their audience. And a perfect example, I think, recently is how many, and a lot of people thought I was talking about you when I was talking about this, but I know for a fact that you actually do know how to self-custody your own coins and self-custody your own coins. Um, how many Bitcoin podcasters that have done hundreds of hours of education, thousands of hours of education that weren't self-custodying their coins when FTX and all this shit blew up and never had done it before and never had done even the most basic kind of, uh, learned the most basic kind of Bitcoin skills. And they just get up there and they pretend, you know, they portray themselves as, as someone who is uh, an educator, that's someone that's like, and maybe even an expert, some of them will call themselves experts, right, on this matter. And they've never even educated themselves and learned the basic Bitcoin skills. And I think there's a responsibility there uh, for those types of people to learn that before they go out and, and try and proclaim and recommend things to others. Um, yeah, I'm going to give you a different answer. I think, you're, I think you misunderstood what I said by blind spot. I don't mean you don't understand what it is and go and educate people. I think your blind spot, blind spot is the propensity for people to be able to learn it and retain that knowledge and use it in the future. The XPub thing, like, I have zero regrets. I, I reckon one of my big wins in Bitcoin is making XPubs publicly discussed to the level they have been. Absolutely publicly discussed. Like, it's a thing. It became a meme because of that. And that's a great thing. More people now know about XPubs 
because of me doing that. It was the same as I did with nodes. Like two years into running the podcast, I admit, I was like, yeah, by the way, I've never run a node. All these people lost their shit. Because of that, now more people run nodes because it became a topic. We made a show about running nodes. I've always said, like, my role in Bitcoin is not to be an expert, it's to represent uh, the normie, okay? And I see the emails and the people come and talk to me and they're like, oh, you ask the questions I'm too scared to ask because I get damned for it. You, you're the shield in front of me for the, asking the simple questions. And I'm never going to change, Matt, ever on that. Never going to change. Because for me, Bitcoin, a lot of Bitcoin usage is like using Linux, like the only people who use Linux are people who like no computers. Everyone else wants shit done for them. And you might not like this, Matt. You might like it, but that's just the reality of the world. People want a Mac or they want an iPhone because they want the simplicity. Okay, then don't be a Linux influencer. Then. No, no, no. Let me, just let me finish. <laughs> because, because I'm right on this, okay? And they don't have the time in their evening to learn and program and code. They, don't, they just want it easy. And not you might not point. like, no, no, it is the point. It is the point. Having the empathy for how difficult this is. Like, uh, like this, the, the, the difficulty some people have on the most basic I'm well things. aware of this. Yeah. So, so I'm going to be that, like, if they're advanced and they're expert, they can go listen to Stefan Levera because he's got them, right? And if they're um, privacy conscious, they're going to come and listen to you. If they're like nervous and they don't understand this stuff and like technical stuff worries them, I'm I'm gonna be the guy for them. And I'm I'm never gonna change from that. And I know the reason I'm not gonna change is because I know it helps people. You might not like it, but I know it helps people. And the best thing for me is like afterwards they search for a Matt O'Dell video on YouTube and they learn to do something. All right, well the good thing is you've admitted that you knew what an X Pub was and that's not was at just the time bullshit. it happened. Not at the time it happened. I didn't. I didn't okay. know what the fuck the next pub was. Okay. And like somebody sent me this long article. I was like, I don't get this shit. It just doesn't work for me. I'm a storyteller. I'm not a technical person. Okay. Look, I mean, I'm extremely empathetic to the average person. Um, I battle with that all the time. Like it's, it's one of the things that consumes the majority of my time is, is educating average, you know, helping average people expand their skills and expand their knowledge and see all the questions they have and all this so I'm, I'm well aware of that. And I think you do provide a service in that regard um, as an educational show. And it's important to take that responsibility seriously. Fuck off. <laughs> you know, I'm too. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, if my show is an educational show, all shows are educational shows. This is... Yeah, I mean, you're either a, entertainment is, or education, right? I think this or is, is a, like the two. I think this is a... Is it an entertainment show? It's a show? talk show. It's an education show. It's a talk show. It's not. I don't consider this an education show. I think this is a talk show. This is a show to make people think about different topics. But good talk shows are education shows. But, then, like, but I mean, most of them are. Like, it's a gray area between talk show and entertainment. We don't make shows about how to do UTXOs. Anymore. You just went to a whole long thing about how you're empathetic to people that are trying to learn. Yeah, I am because it's education. But yeah, okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Look, but you understand my point. Like you, you, you understand the basics. You've learned the basics as you've as you've gone through this space. And this is where I think your empathy has a blind spot. You don't see. You expect people can learn this stuff. There are things that I can't learn. I can read it, and it can be explained to me. But I can't. Like I cannot learn to code. It's not possible for my brain to be able to do that work. Yeah, but now you're just moving there. No, 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 no. But my point I'm trying to make is that. 
and an exercise we'll do after this, I'll get up an explanation of uh, like what an expub is. And then I'll talk you through when I'm reading it, what my brain's saying to me and where I'm struggling. It's like your blind spot is thinking everyone can just get this. Some people just cannot get it. It just isn't, they, they don't have the ability or it's going to take so long, they're not going to do it. It's just, it doesn't work for them. And that is a blind spot. That's a blind spot a lot of people have. I, I could do the same. I could turn around to a lot of people in Bitcoin and, and go, do you not see what's wrong with your brand? Do you not see what's wrong with the color scheme on your website? No one's going to like listen to that show or go and click on that. They're like the branding shit, I see it like that. Like people have different brains and different skills. But I think my approach, one of the good things, I mean, Wasabi Wallet uh, basically, didn't they do the McCormack version? Yeah. You know, like I helped them understand mistakes that they were making in some of their design or some of their UX. To everyone listening right now, if you open your favorite podcasting app, search Still Dispatch and go to episode 43, that's the Bitcoin for Beginners episode, you can do it. Not everyone can. I'm you telling can do I'm, it. All right, I'm telling you. You sit down, you should, you should, when you, I'll get you over to the UK, I'll sit you down with my dad and go, go on. And you'll, you'll experience somebody who cannot do technical things. Okay. Still Dispatch, episode 43, you can do it. Have a go. I hope you can do it. I'm not telling anyone, anyone not to do it. But the expectation you have, of, of some people have of others is a blind spot. I'm aware. Yeah. I'm aware of the UX challenges hey, in Bitcoin. They're ever, improving. Have you ever bought furniture and got out the... Uh, like the Ikea combination yeah, and then you, and then you get out the instructions. You're like, I can't fucking figure out how to put that together right. from this, right? That is what like some of the explanations of stuff is in, in Bitcoin. XPub, it's your extended public key. It does this. It's, it's derivation. Like It's like, what the fuck? I'm reading a foreign language. Sometimes people just cannot get it from the explanations are given. It's a reality. Like... Well, if anyone out there is listening and goes and does listen to that Civil Dispatch episode 43, definitely reach out and tell me, you know, where you hit your roadblock and how I can improve there. Uh, you can find my contact information at mattodell.com. I actually used one of your um, videos, remember, to... Uh, the Wasabi video? No, it Nicole was the... Card? No, it was the green wallet, how I could um, sweep my... Open dime. Open dime. Yeah, that guide's at werunbtc.com. Yeah. We got, I have um, a bunch of guides there. There was something that got lost in that one though as well. I told you about it. Anyway, listen, look, we're going around in circles. You could do it. You did it. <laughs> Eventually. I've updated that guide. Green wallet changed how they set it up. So it uses blue wallet now. Different color. Matt Odell, I look forward to sitting down with you again at some point this year. And I look forward to sitting down with you at the end of the year. Likewise, likewise. Uh, you know what? There's probably good we didn't drink because we'd have been fucking throwing Thank shit. Thank you for having me. Matt, you're always welcome to the show. I love I've you. drank two tall boys of water. It's my most sober what Bitcoin did. Yeah, I, know. I know. Like two bites of this fucking apple. Has this apple just been in frame this whole time? The whole time. The whole time. Matt, I love you. Those are the only two bites of food I've ever taken on camera. It's just super really? self-conscious. I don't like it. Okay. Um, do I eat? That's why there's like a half-eaten apple. No. But I haven't eaten lunch today. I just... You hungry? We, we got some steaks. We were at Bitcoin Park. We hosted that event. Then I did dispatch, and I drove 20 minutes out of the way, and then I came 20 minutes back. Have you? Well, that was your fault. Have you got to go? And then I ate two bites of apple. Answer my question. Air. Have you got to go now? Yeah, let's wrap. I mean, have you got to leave, though? Because if you're hungry, we bought you a steak. We can. We have steaks? Yeah. 
Yeah, let's let's do it. Danny cooks a mean steak. I could eat a steak. I can always eat a steak. All right, go check out Bitcoin Park. Go check out Citadel Citadel Dispatch. Go and check out. I'm sounding like I am pissed. Go and set up. Uh, check out Citadel Dispatch. We'll put everything in the show notes. Uh, show notes. <laughs> I can't fucking talk. Right, just wrap. Um, yeah, wrap. <laughs> We're done. See you later. Love you, Matt. Ciao. Cheers. Okay, what did you make of that? Do you enjoy that? I think Odell was his classic self, you know, challenging me and asking me important questions. And you know what? We take a lot of responsibility with this podcast. You know, a lot of the things and the decisions we make weigh heavily on us. Everything from sponsors to guest choices and the topics we cover and the places we deliver. We've been doing it for five years now. We always try and improve it. And so I think there may come a time when I look back on this interview and, and reflect on it and think how important it is. And you know, I do want to say a big thanks to Matt. I'm glad he's a friend. I'm glad I have him in my life. He is somebody I lean on sometimes with some of the decisions I have to make. So I hope you enjoyed this. You know, we are now in 2023. We are working hard. We are trying to produce all the best content we can. We've been out in Nashville and made a bunch of shows, and we've also been in Austin. And next week, I'm also going to be sticking around in Austin because I'm going to be making a, another film in my Follow the Money series. Anyway, if you've got any questions about this, anything else, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. <laughs>